Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 57 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. Thank you so much for taking the time and trouble to download us from wherever you get your podcasts from. My name is the Twisted Genius Dinais, and I'm joined as ever by my esteemed co-host, Liam Hap. Good evening, sir. Are you right there, Dean? It, it was my kind of think tribute there, just to, you know, the and new voice. I tell you what, I'll take that over you putting a really sarcastic tone on this theme like you normally do. At least you uh, kind of sound sincere in calling me esteemed, even though you and I both know it couldn't be further from the truth. But yeah, Indeed. I'm good. I'm good. It, How about yourself? It, yeah, you see, it takes it takes the death of a Hall of Famer for me to be nice to you. There you go. And yet Har- Harley Race didn't get the uh, same sort of reaction out of you, unfortunately. No, he didn't, actually. That's trouble. Yes. I was waiting was for that compliment. You don't realise how much I cheer the death of others. Just to, yes, Dean, <laughs> Dean is going to text me with a compliment because someone has died. Someone famous has died. He's going to compliment me. And I stayed up for 48 hours and I didn't get a fucking thing. <laughs> Harley Race wasn't in the Hall of Fame, was he, I don't think? Is, is that your loophole? But I yeah, think he yeah, was. Surely he yeah. is. I don't know. We'll he check has that to be. Later. Anyway, how how are you uh, how are you getting on with day four million of lockdown? I am spending day four million of lockdown looking up whether or not Harley Race is in the WWE Hall of Fame <laughs> because that is going to bother me. But how can you not? I understand the business model of it, i.e., it's a load of bollocks. But you've got to have him in. He sure. went in two thousand and four. Oh, there you go. Good stuff. Excellent. And, and well-deserved. Yes. So, yes, day four million of lockdown. A golden age for podcasting. Don't forget, kids, a golden age for podcasting. You can follow us online at BecauseWCW on Twitter, facebook.com forward slash BecauseWCW. Um, and we have got ourselves a very special guest to review a pay-per-view. Uh, we have got someone that I have known for many, many years, and we, we kind of lost touch, and then we re, we reconnected a little while ago at a show uh, with uh, Riptide Show in my hometown of Brighton, um, and I'm talking about a very special guest, uh, someone who's been featured on BBC News, um, uh, for uh, as in featured on the, the news for, for wrestling, not you know, for some terrible crimes committed outside of wrestling or anything like that. Uh, please welcome to Because WCW, Priscilla, Queen of the Ring. Hello. Hello, team. How are you doing, darling? I'm very good. I must just clarify, you, you haven't uh, been on BBC News for committing some horrendous crimes, have you? Not yet, but here's hoping. That's I will true. say though, Dad. I will say that I'm so excited because in all in like 20 years, you realise you and me have never actually worked on a project together. 
like I've been to your shows and I've sucked up to you. You've come to my shows and sucked up to me. And here's the first time you and me together sucking each other. This is fabulous. <laughs> well, we couldn't ask for more, could we? Well, so, uh, there's a few other bits, but we'll talk about the OnlyFans phase later, darling. Indeed. So um, if people are not familiar with you, Priscilla, uh, give, give us a bit of background about, uh, about yourself, how, how you got into wrestling and how, uh, how the Priscilla uh, character came about. Well, yeah, I mean, for anybody who doesn't know me, if you're getting a bit of an idea, then yes, I am a cross between Pat Patterson and Goldust. You're basically looking at the best drag queen wrestler in the world, darling. I bring you Billy and Chuck realness every single time I step out. Darren Young's favourite wrestler, the hashtag catchers, catch can comedy queen. Um, but yeah, wear, wear dresses, kiss boys and have a good time. And uh, wrestling isn't always known as the most... Um what should we say, the most accepting or the most uh, liberal of, of audiences, depending on where you go around the country. How, what, what reception does your character receive, would you say? And how has oh, that changed it, over time? Yeah, I mean, it's taken a long time to get to where it is. There's, there's obviously a lot of cis wrestlers out there who stick to the script and it's all pretty expected. And um, I think being a a young gay wrestling fan, um, I felt maybe the characters I saw on TV, um, a, lot, a lot of times I went, oh, that's someone who represents me. And then three weeks later, they'd be going, oh, but I'm not gay, though. And it made me feel like, oh, God, I can't really be honest about that. And, and I thought that would change when I got a bit older and, and I went to wrestling classes. And, um, you know, without trying to point uh, fingers at anybody, there was a very general perception of, like, if you were gay, then we would find out and we would kick you out because, oh, you know, we think that's inappropriate. Mm. Uh, don't get me wrong. It always comes from a place of trying to protect others. Like, we don't want to hurt our trainees by having gay people here. But then if you're a gay trainee, that's, that's pretty fucking hurtful. <laughs> So I guess um, the whole point of what I did was trying to be, um, well, without trying to sound too cheesy or too, you know, too in my own horn. I, I wanted to be that hero that I didn't have when I was younger. And um, yeah, I, I was, well, I, I mean, I've been, I've been doing it 17 years now, which is impressive considering I'm obviously only 21. But at this point, <laughs> what are you, I, sorry, did I tell a joke? Excuse me a bit. I want sorry, to I, uh, I, um, I, I just uh, swallowed some water the wrong way. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's understandable. Fair enough. I, I do I do appreciate that. But uh, message me later. I'll teach you about how to improve that gag reflex. No Excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, but yeah, anybody out there who's listening who wants to have some LGBT in their life, please do feel free to follow me and on all social media platforms at Priscilla QOTR. And Liam, that is QOTR as in Queen of the Ring, not as in Couture. It's Priscilla. Thank you. I was just about to make that very error. Thank you for clarifying that. Thank you <laughs> and, from the uh, bottom of my heart. And if you, if you haven't seen a, a Priscilla match, then um, I'm going to set myself up here by saying that your entrance is tremendous. Um, but the, uh, the, um, the matches are very good as well. But they, it, it, is, it is hugely entertaining. And, and as far as I can think, in the, in the world of British wrestling, you are a, a delightfully unique character. Who British brings... wrestling... Listen here, bitch. There's not anybody else in the world who brings a different lip sync to every single show with full-on dances and all of that stuff. I, I don't want to be sold short here. British wrestling is lucky to have me, but the world can tune into a unique bit of wrestling when you find Priscilla on Queen Priscilla at YouTube. Thank you. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one, and you're listening to Because WCW. Now choke on that. The 
pay-per-view you have chosen uh, mm. is from the not-quite-glory years of 2000. You've chosen Spring Stampede 2000. And I think I'm, I'm echoing uh, Liam's thoughts, having watched this, where I say, for God's sake, why? Why? <laughs> what? Okay, okay. So, listen, do you want a real, like, on-the-cuff, like, proper scoop? This is a this is a proper, like, this has never come out of my mouth before in a public sphere. Are you ready? Okay, for... okay yeah, cool. So tell me. If you ask me backstage, what's your favourite wrestling show, Priscilla? I will answer you WrestleMania X7. I will tell you it's uh, Survivor Series 2002. It's going to be Invasion 2001. But genuinely, if I'm being honest, the pay-per-view that I watched the most and that I have watched so much that my videotape ran out that when I heard the network was launching, I checked to see if it was available and then agreed for my 9.99. And I, if you work out the stats, I reckon about £4 of that, that, of that subscription every month for the last six years has been based on me watching Spring Stampede 2000. It's my favourite event ever. And would you like to know why? Go on. Right. So... In the 80s, we had wrestling, okay? We had Ric Flair's, we had Hulk Hogan's, we had Dusty Rose, the people who built great matches, 20, 30-minute matches that fans could really get into. And yeah. then we built our way up through the 90s where we had the, uh, the the Steve Austins and the Shawn Michaels and the DDPs and the Goldbergs doing exactly the same, trying to build up a new type of great wrestling to follow. And then if you get to the mid-2000s, it became about the cruiserweights. It became about the John Cena's and the Edges who were focused on the near falls and building a whole new style of wrestling. And even these days, it's so concentrated on the wrestling style. But that period, that late 99, all the way through 2000 to towards the end of 2001, is the only period in wrestling where all companies that are at the top of their game went, you know what? We are bothered about getting the ratings. So instead of focusing on entertaining themselves, feeding their own egos, instead of wrestlers going, oh, I'm going to be the best wrestler I can be, they became entertainment. They became, we're going to bring in the widest audience we possibly can. Now, Spring Stampede 2000 was at the point where WCW was already dead in the water. Like You guys covered Uncensored recently, is that right? We did, yeah. Yes. Not the uh, two episodes ago, number 55 with Justin Henry. So um, that was the pay-per-view before this. Yeah, it was. It was a dreadful show. Mm. <laughs> and Kevin Sullivan got fired off the back of it. And they basically went, right, we don't have anything left now. It was two weeks after WrestleMania 2000, which for context was the pay-per-view with not a single singles match. And everything was about feuds and angles. And they had that crazy battle royal with all the hardcore guys. And WCW were running out of money. So they looked at Eric Bischoff, the guy who revitalized them in the 90s. And they looked at Vince Russo, who that month, that's the month Vince Russo jumped from WWF to WCW and started on their project. And they basically got told, you two have got the ship. And before people started going, oh, start changing what you're doing, which happened after Spring Stampede, is the only pay-per-view which is actually, truly, Bischoff and Russo running the house. And you've seen the build-up to it, so it's not like they went, oh, we need to slowly work it around. They just went in and went, this is a bag of shit. We've got one shot of this. Let's change the absolute face of it, change all the feuds, drop the NWO. We're just going to do a pay-per-view where they took off all the guys that they didn't like, the Kevin Nash, the Hulk Hogan, the Sid Vicious, who, let's face it, definitely found a way to get their face in. But in terms of the actual matches, they took away all of that dross, gave all the young guys a spot, 
and they've made the most batshit crazy wrestling event that is just like, I can only imagine the amount of cocaine going backstage because, <laughs> oh my God, it makes, it makes no sense. But at the same time, it's such a ride of just ridiculousness. It's, it's disappointing at every angle, but they disappoint in such style that if you haven't seen this pay-per-view and you're listening to this, you have to check it out because it's it's the only standalone event WWE history where I feel that Russo actually got it right. But in all the wrong ways, but he got it right at the same time. And I it's my favorite event. I love it. Okay, so I, I was um, I was going to throw to Liam just for a bit of a potted history of WCW, but you've done a fantastic Sorry. job for us there. No, that's, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, um, I should say, Liam, I did get an application earlier for a job. Dean's doing it. It's a, it's a new co-host, but I'll finish that <laughs> after this one. <laughs> but, um, yeah, this, so, uh, this, Liam, is where we've, we've stripped all the titles. We've got three tour, different tournaments all going on at the same time in this one pay-per-view. We've got 14 matches. Um, yeah, this is where we are in WCW's vaunted history. Yes, indeed. And I won't worry too much about uh, be, being robbed of the opportunity to provide a potted history because there's there's plenty of stuff that Priscilla has, has, <laughs> has not really touched upon there. Uh, and I kind of feel a little bit bad that by the time I'm done with this pay-per-view, I may end up eroding your opinion of this a little bit, which I hope I don't, because it's it sounds like you enjoy it. And it's only fair that one person on this fucking planet enjoys this pay-per-view, but uh, I don't want to ruin <laughs> it. Um, so, well, so... give it your best shot, darling, because honestly, the, the cocaine I've got beside me, I'm going to enjoy this show regardless, whatever you say, so I, just crack on. I think that's what we've all been missing, is the people in Chicago that night and the people who actually ordered it on pay-per-view were not coked up enough. That was the problem. Um, but first, I'll right. go into the, into the build of this show, because even though for the first time we are covering a pay-per-view that is the one immediately after the last one we covered. We don't really do that sort of chronological order outside of the Nitro watch-alongs. And, and that one time we did Starcade 95 just as the watch-alongs Ooh. got there. We don't do a lot of chronological order. So, even though this is the first time we're doing it through pay-per-views, it just so happens that so fucking much happens in WCW in, in the span of four weeks. So I'm going to try and do this in an abridged way. We had Uncensored 2000. Go back two episodes, listen to that. It sucked. It was dreary. It was terrible. That whole first three months of 2000 after the Radicals left, that was a notorious lowest point for WCW. They're at a point of desperation. Their move is, is they are going to bring back the two people who failed before Sullivan failed again, which was Eric Bischoff, who obviously had like the amazing run and turned those WCW into a success, but then lost track of things and didn't realise how to keep it going, ran out of steam and was fired in 1999. And then he was replaced by Vince Russo, who in that first run lasted all of two months, maybe three months. Can't be too harsh. It was actually three months before he bottomed out. They're going to bring them back, but this time they're going to bring them both back together. Because as you know, when it comes to, say, like fixing something around the house, if a hammer doesn't work and a screwdriver doesn't work, the best thing you can do is to sellotape the hammer and the screwdriver together and go at it with that. That will work, guaranteed. You know, it's, 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 it's basic logic. Come on, guys, it's common sense. Right, 
So that's what they've decided to do. In the meantime, we had the Nitro straight after Uncensored. That is still technically a Kevin Sullivan production. And you'll remember when we discussed what was happening with Uncensored, uh, Sid was the champ, but Hogan was still main eventing, was still pooching about. It looked like they was leading Sank, and they did. They had Sid turn on Hogan the day after Uncensored. So that happened in the main event. Load of other matches, of course, none of them particularly noteworthy. You had the Sid turn, and you'll feasibly go into Sid Hogan at Spring Stampede, even though Hogan has been the the arse in the whole thing, and Sid is arguably justified in shit-canning Hogan as a friend. But that's another run for another day. The following week, um, Sid wasn't anywhere to be seen. It was spring breakout. Now, during the spring breakout Nitro, this was the one before the final ever Nitro in 2001, the penultimate spring breakout Nitro, They've run a few matches along the lines of the storylines they're running. For instance, you've got Sting and Vampiro teaming up to face team package, etc., etc. But during the show, they're actually quite open. And they're saying that Russo and Bischoff are coming back together. They've got talking heads, guys like Finley that coming on saying, yeah, I think they they can do a good job of fixing this company. You know, which is a great thing to admit on your TV show that your company needs fucking fixing. Yes. Uh, and then they did a, a rather unprecedented thing. This is the state they're in. But they decided that they were actually going to pull having a live show on the third week of four between Uncensored and Spring Stampede. They ran a, uh, a like a highlights. Best show. of Nitro, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I think they actually took the guys into the studio to film the segues between the flashbacks. Otherwise, it is not original content at all, which, as you'll know, with some of these things going about in the news regarding Fox and USA and Vince McMahon and, and the lockdown and that, uh, TV networks don't like that. They, they, they mostly lean on wrestling because it's live content, even if the advertising demographics aren't great. Uh, they want the live content. So if you're just going to go, actually, we're, we've put ourselves in a bit of a bind here. We're, we're going to do a highlight show this week. TV execs probably aren't going to be happy about it, even if they're smiling to your face. So they've done that. And that leaves one of the most infamous Nitros in history, which was six days before Spring Stampede. And that was when they hit the reset button. Now, this was Russo and Bischoff. Uh, and to be honest, the details of that... we. It deserves its own show, and I'm not even sure it deserves just a watch-long. Much like we did a proper show for the first Thunderdean, one these days, maybe with Priscilla, because he's into this era, we're going to have to look back at that Nitro six days before this pay-per-view. Liam, you're already blowing my mind, darling, because I've I've never gone through those before, but I had it in my mind that this was like a whole month of programming. I thought that this no. particular pay-per-view was where they went crazy. Not This was just one week in their life. They just started and finished the whole... Wow. See, cool. see now on the Vince Russo, Jeremy Beremy time frame, uh, fans of the Good Place will get that reference. Uh, in his in in, in his head, um, this is definitely a month of pro. You know, for, for him, this is like a whole month of. He he probably felt like he had to drag things out with, with the mm. amount of stuff he's crammed in here. So, yeah, so the the main take from that Nitro six days before was all titles are vacant which really doesn't do you any credibility to just do that. Um, mm. Russo and Bischoff were immediately positioned as not like feuding with each other or anything novel or fresh at the time, but they are together and you've got full control is with Hills. Uh, we've never seen that before, two years after Austin McMahon. Um, 
and you've got it's a proper um, it's a proper shoot though, isn't it? Because you think about it, they bring Bischoff and Russo in to change everything, and Bischoff and Russo are like, right, we're in charge now. Here are the guys we like. We're going to try and ruin the careers of the people we don't like. It's it's the most shooty like thing that I've I've seen from that era, and I've seen Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, you know. There, there's a certain element to that, and there's there, there's a lot I want to say about the storyline itself, which I'll save for after the show, I think, because mm. whenever we've touched upon some 99 shows, a lot of diehard WCW fans will remember that they almost did a similar storyline a year before this, and had they done it then, it might have actually revived this i don't think they would come anywhere close to to shit hot wwe 99 but it would have stopped them from going down the toilet the way they did because it was where the interest was much like daniel bryan versus the authority worked because people were were into it and that was the thing at the time compared to so many other rehashes of austin mcmahon uh there was a genuine interest because the old guys were hogging it that you could have had the satins the benoits the ravens the booker T's go up against them a year late this is uh, but they're going for it anyway, which you could say better late than never. And here we are. We've reset all the titles. We're having tournaments. All of, all of the tournaments are happening on the show, with the exception of the world title situation, where they did sort of brackets on the Nitro, where it was basically a tournament for one half of the final match with Jeff Jarrett was going to be in the other half. Because as we've established from Uncensored 2000 and some of those other uh, dreary pay-per-views, what we need, the solution to the problem, is more Jeff Jarrett world title matches. That was the one thing we would keep from from that shower of shit, isn't it, Dean? Um, Mm -hmm. So they've had a tournament to decide who will challenge Jarrett for the vacant title. It was won by DDP. Then they decided that um, Jarrett was actually going to qualify anyway um, by wrestling Kurt Hennig. Swerve, it was just so they could stick it to Kurt Hennig with Sean Stasiak, uh, Mr. Perfect Impersonator. And there we are. We've got the, everything else. We've got a, I think we've got a semi-finals and final of a tag team tournament. We've got a full yep. quarters semis. We've got an eight-man bracket for, for the US title. Um, and in typical fashion, all this stuff we're cramming on, all these tournament matches, the Cruiserweight match gets a five-minute multi-man melee. So some things ring true, no matter who's booking, no matter what the promotion. Um, Indeed, yes. We've got four, 14 matches, three tournaments. Um, I suppose we should crack on. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll be here all night. There's so much We will be through. here all night. There's so, um, yeah, so we start off with... Uh, a soundbite of a Vince Russo promo where he says, and I quote, ladies and gentlemen, Ric Flair, you are a piece of shit on the bottom of my shoe. I'm going to scrape off that shit and flush your ass down the toilet personally. <laughs> oh my God, what an opening line. <laughs> it's strong. I'll give you that, Priscilla. It's strong. I mean, I'm like, I kind of sat back. I'm like, Whoa, okay, so this is where we are then. Yeah. You you did yeah, sorry, say to me previously, no, please feel free to jump in. You you uh, you did say to me previously that I when I uh, said I was about to watch this, you said you'll love the opening montage. Honestly, like, mate, bear in mind I've seen the show so many times, but going watching it back this week, going I'm going to be talking about this, I had to pause it 90 seconds in to warn you how intense the first 90 <laughs> seconds are. Like 
Yeah, carry on, carry on. So, yeah, um, so we then see Flair getting beaten up with a baseball bat by Russo, followed by Eric Bischoff wiping out Hogan with a chair, which allowed Billy Kidman to beat him before um, Hogan hit Kidman's car with a Hummer, you know, the Hummer. Um, so it's all about New Blood v Millionaires Club. Oh, let's wait a second, because you're... Uh, OK, we've got 40 matches to get through, but we cannot undersell this opening scene, because not only have we had all of that, but we've also seen in the first 90 seconds more than 20 separate clips of Bischoff and Russo on screen versus about five clips of actual wrestlers. I've heard somebody refer to a chair shot as being waffled around the head. And to be clear, to waffle someone is not a verb. That's not something you can do. But apparently he waffled him with a chair. Okay. Russo has gone on to announce that he is the Batman, which is not the only time you hear it that night. He goes, I am the Batman. And then my favourite line was Hulk Hogan, plain as day, full confidence, walking up to a camera going, Eric Bischoff, I'm going to eat his asshole before he gets in the hunter. I, I missed that What a bit. ride. What a ride. Well, well, you've kind of read my mind because the next part of my note said it looks like the entire focus of the company is on the non-wrestling writers of the show. And given how many <laughs> shots of Bischoff and Russo we've had, that kind of backs it up. So, yes. I'm actually it's being his... nice. It's nearly twice as many as that, but I'm, okay. I'm being nice there. So, it's um, April the 16th, 2000. We're in the United Center in the great wrestling city of Chicago, which is probably the number one wrestling city in the U.S. at this point in time. Ah, uh, those poor fuckers. They're not going to know what's hit them. <laughs> Our commentators are Tony Schiavone, joined by Scott Hudson and Mark Madden. Main event, as Liam touched on, sees Jeff Jarrett and DDP face off for the World Heavyweight title. Um, Schiavone also says that Bischoff and Russo, there's the first mention of them, have instructed the referees to be lenient and not throw the matches out too quickly, which basically is the translation for standby for bullshit. So match <laughs> number one, it is our first semi-final in the WCW Tag Team Tournament, um, and it is the Mamelukes against Ric Flair and the Total Package, and it's not often that you see Ric Flair in the opening match of a pay-per-view, um, but after the Mamelukes enter, Mean Gene is backstage interviewing Team Package, Luger is dressed to wrestle, Flair isn't, Flair ca- cuts one of his maniacal promos and says that Russo has said it's going to be a street fight, so he's dressed to fight. Um, I should note that Ric Flair is therefore the first person uh, in history to turn up to a street fight in a polo shirt, slacks and loafers. Um, he also says in his book that he literally couldn't be bothered to get dressed by this point. He'd given up on WCW so much that he was like, yeah, I just didn't care. I was just going to wear my clothes for it. It's, it's true. You you remember um, the, the final Nitro, he wrestled in a T-shirt with his trunks. Yeah. And all that. It was a lot of self-esteem issues, I think, as well, where... I mean, there's never been a point, even now in his 70s, there's never been a point where Ric Flair is is physically that dreadful. But uh, he he felt that he couldn't carry on, and he he had to uh, wear a t-shirt over his over his chest. So and then there was Hawaiian shirts. I remember. Well, we well there was Creed. yeah there was. I was going to say there was a time, wasn't there a match him and Dusty Rhodes in a tag match? And yeah. he was, yeah, he was in Final Hawaiian pay-per-view, agreed. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there you go. So, um, yeah, Luger is 41 at this point, but he still looks in absolutely unbelievable shape. And by unbelievable, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, incidentally, before the first match of the pay-per-view has even started, Vince Russo's name has been mentioned six 
times. But before the match begins, Russo himself appears on the ramp after getting his own entrance music, of course. And Russo says it's Flair and Luger versus two rookies, and that's not fair. That's two rookies who were recently tag team champions. Way to put over your own product. So um, talking of recent tag team champions, here come the Harris brothers, and it's four on two against Flair and Luger. Um, eventually, we get to a one-on-one situation in the ring. It doesn't last for long. Flair tags in Luger, but the new blood team distract the ref so he doesn't see it and they continue working over flair um disco inferno is then led off by two unidentified burly men and that's never mentioned again uh, i feel exhausted at this point just from watching it we've still got another 13 matches to go um the fight breaks down into the ringside area luger clamps on the torture act and he makes johnny the bull submit to give team package the win in an an action packed and instant packed six minutes and 11 seconds. So, uh, Priscilla, what do you make of this one? I mean, like, again, for the sake of getting through this whole thing without having to do six of these, like, I'll try to keep it brief. But, like, first off, what a way to shit all over your own guys. Like, these guys are a bunch of rookies. So, we're only going to have that. We're going to give you four people to job out in the opening scene. And then we go on to the, like, big veto. Oh, apart from the fact that he wore the dress and went round and cost me all my bookings at All-Star by being dreadful when he came over here. Like, that man, he, he does a reveal. He takes his top off towards the end. And not only does he do it, he does it midway through Luger's hot tag, which is about the only bit that's exciting of the whole match. He takes his top off to reveal an identical top underneath it. Like, what was the point? It's just, you, you don't notice it because it's happened so that Luger has to stand there and wait to give him a clothesline while he's like, oh, I'm going to take my top off. And he's wearing exactly the same vest underneath, which is why you can blink and you miss it. But it's just dreadful. I did miss that. I do remember seeing um, Luger kind of standing in the ring, waiting for him to come off the top. And you were at one point, he kind of shrugs his shoulders and he <laughs> yeah. looks over to Flair like... I'm waiting for it, and yeah, it's very old. I guarantee you what went through his head then was like, listen, I told him you didn't have time to do this, and he insisted on jumping off the court. Like, I told him, man, I told him. Look, we all look shit right now. Here, got punch to the gut. Thanks for coming. Cheers. Oh, man. Liam? Well, uh, Priscilla, you were talking beforehand about how this would be, you know, Putting, putting the older veteran wrestlers down to the side a little bit and giving showcases to the younger guys. And how's that working out for you in this opening match? In in fairness, in fairness, like every one of the younger guys gets some stuff in. So the Harris brothers get a couple of double teams in. Vito takes his identical top off. And you also get uh, Stan Bowley, who gives us a really nice leapfrog to the top, turn around 180 clothesline. It's the first mm. of about 18 diving clotheslines off the top rope of the night. But it was impressive. And as a young fan, I was like, cool, fair play. And let's let's not let's not you know put it down because well let's do put it down but you know at the end of the day it did its job which was to make Luger and Flair look like absolute bosses who essentially couldn't be beaten that, I think that was the point of the match either that was just to ruin all of the all of the guys that Russo represents but you know either way they achieved they achieved their goal whichever one of those two it was. Fair enough. Well, we then go back to Mean Gene, who's with the recently deposed ECW world champion, Mike Awesome. Now, it does get referenced a few times, but this was a very interesting point in wrestling history because 
Um, this was actually, um, by sheer coincidence, this was around the time of ECW Cyberslam 2000, where I actually went over to Philadelphia for that, and we, we just happened to be in the middle of all of this. Um, Mike Awesome, whilst the ECW champion, jumped to WCW, um, I think because either he wasn't working with a contract or he knew that Paul Heyman didn't have any money to sue him if he left. Um, so he actually left with the belt and then um, managed to return to an ECW house show where Paul Heyman, Everton Master Negotiator, managed to get him to lose to Taz, um, former ECW wrestler who had um, signed with the WWF. So at that moment in time, a WWF wrestler beat a WCW wrestler. Um, and then about a week or so later at Cyberslam, um, Tommy Dreamer beat Taz for the belt and then got challenged by Just Incredible and dropped the belt to him the same night. So um, things are rather uh, sensitive at this moment in time regarding Mike Awesome being in WCW. Um, he's interrupted by Bam Bam Bigelow. He attacks Bigelow afterwards um, to presumably set something up between the two of them. We well, isn't get... that great psychology as well? Because Bam Bam isn't part of the tournament. Mike's busy saying how he's going to be in it. Bam Bam comes over, says, you're a piece of shit, and then leaves, and Mike's like, you know what? I need extra drama this evening, so I'm going to attack this dude before I enter the first round of the tournament. That is real great, simple storytelling that me as a like 14-year-old fan can definitely, definitely follow. And isn't it amazing? Simple storytelling is it works and it can be understood. Something that seems to be an alien concept to Mr. Russo a lot of the time. Um, we then get a video clip of Jimmy Hart attacking a local radio DJ called Man Cow. And God help us, we appear to be getting a match between these two people. Because obviously, when you've got 13 other matches on a show, what you do want to have is two non-wrestlers having a match uh, on the second match in. So it is Jimmy Hart v. Man Cow. Uh, Jimmy Hart is accompanied by Hale, who is uh, Emery Hale. He was Hulk Hogan's pick for the next big thing for him, I guess, to destroy over time. Um, I think he went and did a few matches um, in Hogan's XWF that was briefly around after WCW. Um, he looked massive, looked like a monster, and ended up dead at the age of 36 from kidney failure. I'll leave you to uh, draw your own conclusions. I was going to ask you if you knew what happened to him, but now I'm... Oh, dear, I'm devastated. Yes, he, he was dead at the age of 36 from kidney failure. Um, Man Cow is accompanied by a bevy of random women as well as his broadcast partners, one of whom apparently is called turd um at one point in the commentary mark madden says this is utter nonsense to which shivani says of course it is um don't forget people have paid to watch this um man cow is distracted by hail heart low blows him heart then climbs to the top rope with a splash and then ends up landing on the referee bear in mind heart is 57 years old by this point in time um hail gets in the ring press slams man cow into his broadcast team on the outside and then throws him back in Hart tries to revive the ref to counter pin, but while he's distracted, Mancal completely forgets to sell, makes a miraculous recovery, hits Hart with a chair across the back, and gets the pin in a mercifully short two minutes, 48 seconds. Kidman then comes down and beats up Hart as a message to Hogan, uh, which is something that was two minutes. to play later on. That was two minutes, 48 seconds. It's yep. just, that sounds like a 40-minute main event. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. What what was it doing on here? I just didn't understand the purpose of it. 
I don't know. But you've got to give Jimmy Hart his props. Well, a month earlier, he was he was coming out without sunglasses on four minutes before a running spot because he was so worried about breaking them. He actually wore them all the way into the ring this time. You've got to give it to him for that. Mm. And like um, also, um, I think a lot of people have seen the, uh, what's the word, the Earl Hebner, Nick um, Patrick um, referee match for the invasion. We all remember that, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, well, like, I think in fairness, like, it, it could have been exactly that. And one thing I will say to them for this match is that, like, you know, we saw top rope splash. We saw man, my man, cow, get so into it that he picked up a chair that was literally his own size. And to the point that he nearly fell over when he picks up and had to reposition himself to get a new angle. Where he's like, I've never held one of these before. They're heavy. Like, they put some effort in, even if it was dreadful. Oh, yeah, they tried. They definitely tried. Liam, what did you uh, did you make anything of this? Do yeah, you wish you'd never seen it? I, I, tr- I try to skip past this as much as I can. I mean, it's it's a general thing that has been done more than once. Between these two in particular, I think, I think they had a WCW match like three times. Generally, it's something they do on a TV show, even in a dark match, because local DJ mm. you know, gets a pot. It's, it's a crowd raiser. You might want to stick it on at the end of the night if the TV taping finishes with a heel beatdown or something. Or There's usually a function for it, but may, uh, a, a, an actual match main pay-per-view attraction when you're already stretching it with with 13 other matches is yeah so um and one thing i do want to know about this is you'll notice the post-match attack on a manager by a kidman mm-hmm. um this starts a trend you'll see not just on this pay-per-view but slambury grand but everything with that russo hallmark that even if he's got a shed load of matches even if they all run like two three four five minutes each has to make that little, there has to be something happening after the match, and you you, you always have post-match shenanigans on a couple of matches per show, but this is a general thing. There, there's almost always an afters for some reason. Mm-hmm. At this be... show, start to finish, there's shenanigans in every match. There's shenanigans after every match. Like I was exactly. looking through it, going, I don't want to get this wrong, but I'm not wrong when I say there's not one match on the card that doesn't have something happening to it that is just unnecessary on some level or another. I can only imagine there's an actual fear in Russo when he writes that there's, there's a fear that unless he puts extra shenanigans on top, people will detest it for being wrestling. You know, the people tuning in for wrestling will detest it for being wrestling. That's a good point. Like, you know, when, when looking at those events, you do get a real sense that he's like, no, 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 none of that quality stuff. We're doing, we're for ratings. And he's, as you say, he's terrified someone's going to switch on and switch off. So he's always giving you something to make you go, oh my God, right, where was that, where was that key that I had? Right. Ah, let's get on with it. Wrestling. And yeah, and if you look at the successful TV shows on Netflix and things like that at the moment, none of them follow Russo's philosophy. There are a lot of quality shows that uh, reward patience and tell stories. And they're the ones making that massive company millions, billions of dollars, whereas WCW is dead. Hey, every episode, <laughs> every episode of Tiger King was a gift. It got better with each episode. Oh, I'm on episode three. Oh, my God. Can we do a separate podcast on that? Because it's blowing my <laughs> mind. I actually thought that uh, like Joe Exotic was a face in the last one I watched. I know that's changing. It's, it's, a, it's a thrill. It could happen. Hi, cool cats and kittens. Welcome to Because Tiger King. I mean, who knows? <laughs> it's an offshoot. Um, yeah, it's like, 
I think it's a, a Jim Cornette saying, which is appropriate given how much he hates Vince Russo with a passion. But Jim Cornette, I believe, said, uh, wrestling fans what want to watch. No, wrestling fans go to wrestling shows to watch wrestlers wrestle. And um, there's a there's a really good bit I've just read in the um, I've nearly finished the uh, Guy Evans Nitro book. But um, there's a there's a guy who worked for Turner who. Um, uh, was commissioned to do a survey of wrestling fans as to basically what they what they liked, what they didn't like. And basically the survey came back strongly saying that wrestling fans wanted to watch wrestling matches and what they were turned off by was the, uh, the soap opera element of all the non-wrestling characters in it, um, which obviously flew in the face of the Russo and Bischoff philosophy here. So the report was sort of very quickly ignored and the bloke moved to a different division of Turner. Well, I will say, though, that I have a bit of philosophy myself in my own shows, which is essentially I know that a lot of our fans have partners who aren't into wrestling, and I know that it can sometimes take you years at a time to persuade them to come along to a show. And if all you're producing at the other end of it is pure wrestling, then those people, they're not interested in the first place. Like Total Divas brought in such a huge audience for WWE, half of whom didn't even realise they were watching a wrestling show. So I think it is important to give them hooks. But if the entire show, in the entire, entire Spring Stampede 2000 is just a series of hooks for non-wrestling fans, then there's literally nothing there for you if you actually want to see a lockup. Yeah, I think you you want to get something in between. I think the the best analogy I've I've seen is is from um, Brian Dixon, who's been running All Star Promotions since the mid '80s, so he knows what he's doing, and he basically equates it to um to a buffet. So uh, you know, if you don't like one thing, you'll you'll like another, and and you know, there'll be out of maybe you know five five six matches, there might be two or three that are right up your street, maybe one that isn't your thing and a few others that are, are quite good, but there's basically, there's something for everyone. And um, you really see that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of thinking of, about shows I've booked in the past and yeah, you'll have, there'd be a, a bit of a, a, a hardcore brawly type, type wild match and you'd have a, a tag match and you'd have the character, the, the, the characterful heels and baby faces and the, you know, a bit of comedy. And but I'll tell you what you didn't you, have. Everything. You, you, you didn't have Priscilla, which is, which is why Dean Aeus is no longer promoting shows, but you know, because Dean Aeus. <laughs> well, we, we didn't have Priscilla. We, uh, I think we, we may have had you in a previous incarnation, but we, uh, we won't go there. That's, that's a previous, yeah, we can, a, a we'll, we'll previous life. That. Yeah, yes. who cares about, like, you know what, I was £100 soaking wet and I thought I was Austin Aries. Little did I realise I was actually, uh, I, I'm not going to say that, that was going to take us That was going to take us to a dark place in the snowflake. Uh, we'll, just, we'll just skip on over that. Let's move on to match number three then. So this is the uh, United States title tournament. It is beginning, it's the wall v Scott Steiner. And Scott Steiner, well, I don't know if this is a WWE Network edit or if this is what actually happened, but Steiner comes out to his completely inappropriate for his new character slam jam entrance music um steiner isn't intimidated by the wall's reputation and we saw in the last pay-per-view how dominant he'd been and how he'd been destroying everyone left right and center however he is now facing an opponent of a higher caliber um steiner hits a huge suplex and he's manhandling his larger opponent but then Wall hits a low blow right in front of the referee, who, uh, as instructed, doesn't feel doesn't disqualify him. But 
to me, it, it it just feels weird. It feels wrong just seeing the referee stand there and watch a low blow and do nothing. But I guess there's that's what they they uh, mandated. Um, the match spills to the outside. Wall gets a table out. They both try and put each other through it, but then Steiner gouges Wall's eyes and blinded. The Wall puts the referee through a table because obviously a ref and Scott Steiner feel exactly the same to an unsighted man. Another referee comes down, rings the bell for DQ, presumably to protect Wall in three minutes, 53. So Priscilla, what did you make of this one? Oh, you know, I had a couple of points, but it, the thing, the real battle in there that really got me, the, the true battle of that match was Scott Steiner versus the table. Like when he got near that table, he lost his balance, started falling all over the place. He hits the deck, gets back up again. No, 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 I'm going to cover it, going to cover it. Like what I, what I like about this is that it, it puts um, it puts it in place for like the wall is doing a series of table spots over those pay-per-views. Like he's built up to every show and tables. And although this isn't the payoff this night, it leads to that glorious, glorious best of five tables match between him and Shane Douglas. Have you guys covered that yet? No. Have you seen it, Dean? I probably saw it at the time, but it was 20 years ago. And as Liam will tell you, I've had five concussions, so I can't remember it, I have to say. Oh, mate, honestly, it's worth checking down. It's uh, like, I, I don't even know if it's on a pay-per-view. So, um, Great yeah, American again, it's Bash 2000. Oh, uh, there's, there's the encyclopedia. Thank you, sir. Well, Liam, Liam's a wrestling fan who doesn't have concussions, Dean, and I'm sure Liam can yeah. attest to this. That's a match that you do not forget when you've watched it. Or maybe he won't attest to it. Okay, thanks. Uh, <laughs> are you being full of praise or sarcastic? It's hard to tell. Oh, sarcastic, mate. Because the, the okay. So again, it's worth checking out just for five minutes because, like, it's they, the the announcers don't even know the rules until the bell has rung and the match is over. They're they're discussing how many tables you got to break. Um, and like this match is such a great precursor for it because just like that match, no one has an, a clue what is going on at any point. It's just those two going, we've got two minutes to get our shit in, get out this table. And, oh my God, I've fallen over. No, get back up, get back up. Come on, move, 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 move. We've only got two minutes. We're going to get cut. It's just, it's just another cocaine filled orgy of wrestling and it's dreadful, but it's great at the same time. Oh, here we go. Yeah, Great American Bash 2000. Shane Douglas put the wall through three tables at the same time to win. The first was the point. They went, oh, he's doing three. He's got two more to go. And then the music started playing. Amazing. Yeah, the first wrestlers put their opponent through three tables would win the match. And the whole thing took eight minutes. Marvellous. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this instead. Sorry, Liam. Yeah, Liam. Liam, what was your thoughts? I was just going to sit back and listen to you guys deviate in all manner of ways because it means I don't have to cover this <laughs> fucking pay-per-view. Uh, yeah, so yeah, the, to- the tournaments have started and there's just so much. It- it's hard to opinionate because I know we've got another seven US title matches to get through and another three, like, well, well, another two out of three of the tag team tournament matches. But I can confirm, no, um, he used Steinerized on purpose. They were trying to tease Steiner, not necessarily being with the new blood. He might be his own man, you know, because tween Scott yeah. Steiner is something that would work with his foul mouth France and things sure. like that. And the fact that he embarked on a foul mouth rant 
on the Nitro six days before. So he's already running about three different storylines at once. The Wall, along with Vampiro, he was at least one of the fresher things going about that stale as shit Kevin Sullivan three months of turd. Not to say it was brilliant or anything, but as we noted at Uncensored, he, he had his working boots on, and he's, he's obviously getting a lot of support to, to go through and kill people with tables and that. And, yeah, that's that's all going to shit here. It's uh, and, that, and the finish is... Well, the finish belongs on... What, what was the show we did that was they're just full of horrific... It was Halloween Havoc 92, wasn't it? Well, we said there were eight matches and eight creatively horrible finishes. Yes. yes the, and, yeah, yeah this, this finish belongs on that. But as we'll find out in the Russo-Bischoff era, they were planning on making us relive Halloween Havoc 92 and those match finishes all day, every fucking day. Oh, my God. I've just remembered Rick Flett, no, Rick Rude v. Masachono. Sorry. Oh, man. Right, should we move on? Please. Uh, we have a backstage promo with Ernest the Cat Miller when we uh, we also see someone... Now, I didn't know if this was deliberate or if this was a production fuck-up, but during Ernest the Cat Miller's interview, we see a figure walking behind the backdrop. You know, their, sh- their silhouette. Um, and then Cat gets attacked by Bam Bam Bigelow. So I'm not sure if that figure was Bam Bam Bigelow walking in or if just someone had got in the way of the shot. Um, but either way, that's what happened. Um, so match number four is supposed to be, um, it's the US title tournament. It's supposed to be um, Mike Awesome v. Ernest the Cat Miller. But there's no sign of Miller and Bam Bam Bigelow has seemingly taken his place. Um, the commentators say that this is Awesome's first official match in WCW after showing up on Nitro the week before and attacking Kevin Nash. Um, his ECW accomplishments are hinted at, but that was all. Um, the match goes to the outside quickly. Awesome throws Bigelow over the guardrail and then topes over the rail himself to take out Bigelow. Back in the ring, he lands a diving clothesline and he's generally showing off his exceptional agility to a man of his size. Um, the tide turns. Bigelow hits his diving headbutt. He signals for greetings from Asbury Park, but of course, everyone knows the moment you signal for a move in wrestling, you're not going to get to do it. Um, Ernest Miller then reappears to presumably retake his spot in the match, but decides instead to grab the mic, put on his red shoes and dance in the middle of the match. Um, He gets clotheslined by Orson, who then hits a top rope frog splash and picks up the win in four minutes exactly. And I was going to say that this is the first time I could ever think of one wrestler starting the match and another wrestler finishing the match, but then I remembered that Hogan v. Vader strap match at Uncensored in 96, 95, whenever it was. 95? 95. Do you remember the strap match where Ric Flair got dragged around at the end? That infamous start to the uncensored franchise that we yes. uh, did an obituary for with 2000. Yes, we will get to that show. We've done 96, we've done 2000. Basically, every uncensored is an absolute shit show. So we'll get through them all eventually. Maybe they should have thought about censoring some of the bad spots. <laughs> hey, oh, I'm on fire this evening, lads. There's a difference between censoring it and just euthanizing it, which I think <laughs> they probably should have. But um, this was just a weird mishmash of shenanigans, wasn't it? 
What was what was like? I mean, first off, like Mike Awesome isn't really that awesome in this match. He's more like Mike Okay, and I say that because he steps in the ring and everything he does is like diving over the ropes, diving over the barricade. But the ropes and the barricades are so low, presumably to make their huge steroid boys look even bigger than they really are, that they barely reach his waist height. So him doing a dive over the top rope is basically just him hopping over a fence. It's really not that awesome at all. And then Ernest Miller, like his like his promo beforehand, it's like you're in a tournament. No man, no, I'm here to here to see James Brown. Like James Brown isn't here, Ernest. No, I'm here to see James Brown. Then he gets knocked out by Bam Bam Bigelow, who has an issue with somebody else, i.e. Mike Orson, and then comes back out again to get his revenge, only to say, I'm not here for the tournament, I'm here to see James Brown, so I'm gonna dance. And then he just takes the loss. Like did James Brown have any awareness of this spot? Like, was he meant to be there, or did Ernest just also take a bag of coke and go, uh, "Yeah, this is what well, I'm doing"? That was well, Super I will Bowl. hand over to Liam at this point <laughs> in time. We covered Super Bowl 2000 with Billy Wood, and James Brown actually made an appearance, which was shockingly awesome. Oh. The However, fun. in true WCW fashion, they didn't actually advertise him or make any big deal of it at all. <laughs> Amazing. In fact, they actually did the opposite. They played it, if memory serves me right, Liam, they played it up as if he was talking bullshit and that James Brown wouldn't be turning up and then James Brown actually turned up. Which is on brand for the goofy cat character. And we love cats, so you can imagine how that works. But if you have him at the pay-per-view, by all means, afterwards, promote the shit out of it. Put it on all the nitros. Maybe people will think, well, if they do this on a pay-per-view, maybe I should order the next one and see what cool stuff happens there. But they didn't even do that. No, it was the classic F the Brave bringing in Steve Carino, like blow, blow everybody's minds. But instead of bringing in somebody blow everyone's minds they just had like a real nice little song and dance and then just went you know what cat you can just go back to doing that stuff and we'll act as though it never happens because we, we wouldn't want to hurt your character of being crazy like we wouldn't want to get some good ratings for that would we that'd be a shame <laughs> uh, I, I remember steve carino turning up unannounced at fwa i remember i thought you might like that reference then first of many for you darling so you can get yourself over for once i I remember (laughs) him not showing up at an fwa show that i attended where he was supposed to be there that was uh, 2004 he was meant to be in a tag match and he wasn't there carpe diem i believe i was there in the room was that um brent town hall or wembley town hall brent town hall yeah yeah, that was actually funny enough. In classic Russo style, we ended up with a tag team match that involved RJ Singh, who at the time had had a long feud with Alex Shane at the FWA Academy. But no one thought to mention their year-long feud at the Academy whatsoever, despite it being part of the same company. And we just had this long, drawn-out promo by Alex. Hey, Alex, hope you're listening. Give me a booking. Um, and like he just completely glossed over it the entire time, which um, you know was basically on brand with this this show, which is, of course, why I brought it up, but I'm not just thinking of it now. Um, this match is also the second example of many, many top-rope clotheslines, which was the move of the night, I believe, at Spring Stampede 2000. I think they had a meeting and said, nine of these matches must have top-rope clotheslines, lads, and Awesome was happy to take that ball and roll with it. Yeah, this seems to happen on pay-per-views, wasn't it? Starcade '91 that we reviewed with um, Sam Berry Gardner that um, every like loads of the matches finished with top rope cross body blocks. May well have been. I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah. Yes, but anyway, um, 
Anything you want to add to uh, to this match, or should we move on quickly again, Liam? How on earth can I add anything to that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Sorry, well, Liam, mate. It's me and Dean don't do this this often. We're getting excited. Or, um, well, I know I am anyway, but you know, enough, enough about what's going on in my trousers, and let's carry on with the next one. So uh, we then go to a backstage skit, because there's a backstage skit after every fucking match, even though we've got 14 matches tonight, uh, with Bischoff and Russo, because it's been 10 minutes since anyone mentioned their names, followed by an interview with the team of Shane Douglas and Buff Bagwell. And it was at this point that I realised that they were teaming, and I realised that I had absolutely no memory of this team even existing. Um, and uh, yeah, they're new blood, um, but Shane Douglas is 35. Bagwell is a, a mere spring chicken at 30. Um, so this is match number five. It is now the WCW Tag Team Tournament. It's Harlem Heat 2000 v Shane Douglas and Buff Bagwell. Um, Douglas comes out to a classic WCW style, should we call it a pastiche rather than a ripoff of Perfect Strangers, his ECW entrance music. Um, my entire notes say... This is an entirely nondescript tag match, which ends in two minutes 41 with Douglas pinning Stevie Ray. That's as much that's as about I can it. say. Yeah, that's all I can say about it. That's, um, my, my two little takeaways from this was uh, one of the worst leg drops I've ever seen. As Stevie, as, as Stevie Ray does a leg drop, but he's so scared about hurting his own tailbone that he takes a full-on back bump, thus hurting himself during the leg drop. And um, I had a question for you on this, Dean, because the, um, the manager of Harlem Heat does a great job of mid-hot tag grabbing Buff Bagwell out and having a big old rough around the ring with him with his back to the camera, totally distracting the angle. And I watched that and thought, Dean A.S., Twisted Genius, one of the greatest managers of all time, must have watched that with his manager with his back to the camera, distracting from the main action, and he must have just died a little bit inside. There, there was that, yeah. There was that. Mm. I mean, that is, yeah, as you say, everything that a manager shouldn't do. Manager should face the hard cam. The manager should, uh, shouldn't should be distracting from the action. They should be enhancing things and bringing the crowd along if the crowd need bringing you along, which obviously they don't because this match only goes two and a half minutes. So, yes. And the crowd obviously have a load of cocaine on themselves as well because how else could you get through an event like this? You you would think that or the concession stand is doing very well on hot dogs and uh, popcorn or something because anything to distract you from the uh, the bullshit that's going on in front of you in the ring. Um, <laughs> Harlem Heat 2000, they argue with each other in the middle of the ring. So our tag team title tournament final will be Douglas and Bagwell v. Flair and Luger. Uh, can you add anything to the nondescript tag match description, Mr. Hap? Well, I did appreciate the... Uh probably the world's most pathetic Pittsburgh plunge for the finish where he's had to let go. It's essentially a suplex. Well, they call it a suplex, don't they? They actually say he wasn't, didn't do the whole move. Yeah. But, and I will say as well, that team did a good job of glossing over a lot of botches in that match. In that, sorry, that show as a whole. There's a lot of things that go wrong. They just act as though it's absolutely fine. But at that point, that's that's their moment where they're just like, no, that's a botch. That didn't go well. Maybe it's the finish. It is the finish. Okay, well, Shane Douglas looks shit. <laughs> that's pretty much what they told us. Yeah, it is. I don't know, there's... There are ways of like covering up botches and making them look like they're look look like they they were just part of a, a legitimate sporting contest and, and and there's ways of not doing that I guess and yeah that was that was a way of not doing it. 
Ah, yeah. So um, we're now, so we, we flip flop back from the tag title tournament and we go back to the US title tournament with um, what looks like it should be a solid match on paper. It's Booker T or Booker, as he called at this point, versus Sting. Um, Booker distract, distanced himself from the new blood and Bischoff in a pre-match interview because, um, well, he's also 35, but he's hardly new. Um, Sting is the only member of the Millionaires Club in this tournament. And while this is between, well, it's between two baby faces, really, isn't it, Liam, this one? It is. Uh, and as with Scott Stein and a few other things, they're trying to play Shades of Grey while also running a two tribes storyline with where one is trying to take over the company and the, against the valiant baby faces or you know the valiant baby faces called the millionaires club yeah so they're, they're running all these things at once and you wonder why everyone's getting confused because i mean i was very confused watching this at times you know watching it in in isolation almost because you would think surely that the the storyline should be that the the new blood are trying to kind of save wrestling from the millionaires club therefore the millionaires club would be the heels and the baby faces that the crowd would get behind would be the new blood very much if we bring it back to the fwa very much in the spirit of the old school v new school feud which was tremendous um and had the the old school quite rightly cast as the heels telling the new school that they didn't know what they're talking about and the new school being the new generation of wrestlers trying to, to break out. Well, that was how it would have been if it had happened in 99. The, the storyline was it was going that way. This time around, I suppose, to finally get cleared, they've had to uh, massage the egos of the creative control contracts and portray them in a way where they're the heroes in this situation. They wonder why it bombed between the combination of that and the fact that they're running through... 12 months of storyline in two shows mm. classic WCW issue though isn't it really it's that whole like you know we would love to be able to do actual storylines but it's all the people with the egos and the money going uh no sorry like if there was some nope. clear person nope. <laughs> it's not gonna work brother like some guys can beat Hogan not this guy not this guy like, I actually quite like this match, though. In terms of, like, a standalone match on the show, I felt like it was match of the night. I loved the spot. What I will say is that if it had been the exact same match drawn over 20 minutes, it would have been glorious. But the mm. fact they stuck it into less than eight, and they're, like, running around, diving into the stuff on the floor, getting in spot, spot, spot. Oh, here's another spot, here's another spot, here's another spot, here's another spot. It's great, but again, it's just wrestling on speed. There's no need for anywhere near that much action in that short space of time. Yeah, well, I mean, we've got, I mean, the the, the sequence of events, we get Booker wipes Sting out with an axe kick, Sting manages to kick out, Sting nails Booker with a DDT for a two count, a Stinger splash follows, a second one's intercepted by Booker with a Harlem sidekick, Booker goes for a vertical suplex, Sting escapes into a scorpion death drop for the pin, and it's six and a half minutes long. Those, those two are given six and a half minutes. I mean, I, I put this as best match of the night so far, but it's, it's fate praise in a way, I suppose. I was will say it's very nice. The one singular moment of the whole evening where I actually felt like the, the commentary team were singing from the same hymn sheet instead of each going on to their own kind of agenda when all three of them just chant, Scorpion Death Drop! 
at the exact same time. It was absolute magic for me, especially considering all they do is talk over each other and just totally divert from what each other person is speaking. They just don't care at any point. But at this point, they're like, I'm into it. Um, no other point before or after. But yeah, I liked it. And this is you know, one of the few times that we're actually seeing a match without any shenanigans or interference or bullshit finish. It is just a straight-up wrestling match. Well, let's hang on a second, Dean, because if you were watching this on any other show, you would be saying, cool, they went into the announcer table, they went into the ring bell, they knocked over the, the, the timekeeper, like full-on smashed into a camera. Mm-hmm. After the match, they did a little storyline bit as well, just like every other match on the card. Like, if you if it wasn't this show, you'd say that match had loads going on. But because it is this show, like, you yeah, actually know it's pure wrestling. <laughs> it's crazy, yeah. Well, not pure, yeah, not pure wrestling. But, I mean, yeah, the finish, it was a clean finish without anyone else interfering or any anything like that. Yeah, and it is a welcome break from the rest of the show with that. It's like a, oh, I feel reset before they just go, oh, back into it again 30 seconds later. Yeah, Liam? Uh, I think the way to look at this, in a way, is that um, this is one of the few things on this show that when there was talk for over a year of, of doing a new versus old storyline in WCW, all the full starts and all the all the rumours and it finally happening, this match is one genuine example of what a lot of fans were really enthusiastic about getting from such a thing. We've been covering the Nitros and, and, and we enjoy when Sting gets paired up with Dean Malenko or Flair wrestles Bagwell or Savage and Benoit we had recently. And those things kind of make us interested. So to get a bit of that Worlds Collide is the prospect that we want out of this. Uh, and it's just a shame that even though this match is it, it's fine, it's nice to see them actually have a match on the pay-per-view. Uh, you can imagine if the, if the storyline was done properly, you can imagine just how good Sting versus Booker T would be. Mm. Dream match, really. I'm sure they teamed together a couple of times as well. And like those two, they were quite rare in being heavyweight guys who wrestled heavyweight matches, but pulled out some amazing offense off the top and dives. And yeah, they just weren't given enough time. They weren't given enough attention. They just weren't given the platform to really shine. But, But it's still a match worth checking out, I think. Yeah, we covered that tag team, Uncensored 96, where unfortunately they had one of the most boring tag team matches of all time, <laughs> the Road Warriors. But there were reasons for that outside of their efforts, to be fair. Yes. Okay, so Mean Gene is backstage with Bischoff, Kidman and Tory Wilson. They're worried that Hogan might show up and we go straight into match number seven, um, which is another US, <clears throat> US title tournament match between Vampiro and Billy Kidman. Um, it is quite bad, Dean. I appreciate you have to choke on it. It's, uh, <laughs> this one gets off to a quick start with a top rope clothesline from Vampiro. Moments later, he lands a long-range uh, sort of border toss-style powerbomb on Kidman. Kidman turns the tide, takes control of things. Um, Vampiro signals for the nail of the coffin, which obviously means he won't hit it. Um, Kidman counters with a face buster. This match, of course, then spills to the outside because they all do in this uh, show. 
The camera then cuts to the back. We see a car pull up and an angry, well, I say angry, it's comedically angry because Hulk Hogan can only ever do one face facial expression. An angry Hulk Hogan arrives to a massive pop. Um, Madden mentions that he's here for his pay-per-view bonus, which should make me laugh. Um, Hogan then comes to ringside, grabs Kidman by the throat, throws him over the top rope, and is basically beating the crap out of him, throws the ring steps at Kidman but misses, um, and basically isn't selling his bandaged shoulder from the car accident at all. Hogan stands on the steps and choke bombs Kidman onto the commentary table, but the table does not break. Hogan then picks Kidman up and slams him through it, so good recovery there. Um, Hogan then throws a lifeless Kidman back into the ring where Vampiro immediately covers him for the pinfall in 8 minutes 28. Um, it's given the victory to Vampiro because apparently he didn't interfere in the match himself. So at least we have got ourselves um, our semi-finals, Steiner v. Awesome and Sting v. Vampiro. Hogan then grabs the mic, says he's coming after Bischoff. Backstage, we see Russo desert Bischoff as art imitates life. We then see Hogan being edgy by repeatedly calling Bischoff a son of a bitch, looking for Eric, who probably has locked himself in the toilet by now. Hogan then finds himself in his dressing room. Uh, so he finds Bischoff in his dressing room. He corners Bischoff before a bunch of police officers run in, pointing guns at Hogan. And Hogan actually sells someone pointing a gun at him. I mean, it's just glorious, isn't it? Glorious bullshit. Oh, do you know, and again, again, like I, I feel like you and me see different things when we watch this thing because I watching this pay-per-view back and taking notes to the point of going into this, I was like, oh my god, Hogan is half the reason Priscilla was here. Because I bought that this is the first WCW tape I ever bought, and it was maybe the second wrestling pay-per-view I'd seen. Um, there's two main things that really stick out for me, but like the, the first one is that this show starts with Eric Bush, sorry, with Hogan going, I'm gonna eat. Eric Bischoff's asshole. And then he comes out and he, when he attacks Kidman, there's a moment before he throws him through the table where he stood on the steps and he's got a handful of Kidman's hair, face wedged firmly into his crotch while he looks around very happy with himself. And after Billy is choked away, he then gets back on the microphone to say he's now going to come after Eric's ass. He then goes to the backstage area where Eric is literally going, get get away from me, get away from me. And he's like, no, bitch, you're going to be my bitch. And then the police come, the police come and handcuff him. He's the da, 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 sexual harassment Hogan. He's why Priscilla is here. And then on top of that as well, like, so before I've seen any wrestling pay-per-views, I got into the computer games because I was allowed to play computer games, but watching it was too violent. Fair enough. Thanks, Mum. Probably why I'm so obsessed with it now. But anyway, I had WCW versus NWO Revenge. And playing that, I began to get an understanding that the cruiserweights were the high flights. So I would see like Hoobie do a 450, Billy Kidman do a shooting star. I'd seen Ray do Frankensteiners. I was going into this event with hearing these names going, oh my God, I'm going to finally see them. And yet instead what we get is Vampiro and Billy Kidman who are sold to me as a fan as new, young, high flyers. And all I get in that entire match is a top rope clothesline. And it's like the fifth one of the evening. Like Kidman does nothing. None of his moves. It's the least interesting Billy Kidman match of all time. And I loved it. <laughs> 
And, and I guess, Liam, it also kind of sums things up in that you've got two uh, new, young, exciting wrestlers. Uh, a, a young fan like Priscilla would be interested in watching. And then the whole match is about Hulk Hogan. Yes, and when we spent all that time talking about his uh, midlife crisis on the watch-alongs that he was having in 95 and early 96, and as funny as it is to document that, I'd almost forgotten about Stone Cold Hulk Hogan. His uh, absolutely transparent attempt to play off some of the things that were very successful for Austin at this time. And yeah, it was horrible. And then it gets worse. He'd actually become, in later months, he'd become a, a Mick Foley ripoff because he'd play up that he had three personas, Hulk Hogan, Hollywood Hogan, and this one here with uh, F-U-N-B, fuck you, new blood on his on his uh, vest, is um, ter- that's just Terry Belair. So we've got another oh, okay. Vince Russo staple where you use the real names because that's edgy. I will say that I did enjoy Mark Madden just absolutely shooting on it. Like, Madden just, Madden's terrible at all points. But that one bit when he's like, oh, he's here for his pay-per-view check. Like, it's that like was said brilliant. To me. Mate, yeah. And as a young fan as well, I was like, well, this Hogan guy seems like a rather unpleasant fella. Like, I changed my opinion when he forced himself on Billy's face, obviously, as a young gay fan. But, like, you know, at that moment, I was like, I don't think I like this guy. See, it's interesting you say it because I never liked Hogan as a fan, and I think that was shaped by JC the Body Ventura's commentary, which was always anti Hogan as well. See the power of commentators, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we then get a very nice segue because we then the camera pans out of Hogan's dressing room and we see Terry Taylor with Terry Funk, and Terry Funk is getting ready for his hardcore match with Norman Smiley. Um, Funk is told by Terry Taylor that Smiley is in catering. Um, Funk walks to catering. Everyone in catering tells Funk where poor Norman is because they point to uh, the bathroom. And it turns out it wasn't Eric Bischoff. It was uh, Norman Smiley who was the one hiding in the toilet because we can hear him screaming. Um, Funk attacks him in the bathroom and the bell rings. And we are now into match number eight for the vacant WCW hardcore title, Terry Funk v. Norman Smiley. Um, Funk returns to catering, blasting Smiley with a fire extinguisher. He tips the contents of a fridge, which is multiple cans of fizzy drinks or sodas to our American friends, onto him. Um, Smiley then escapes through the serving hatch, which is brilliant, and gets into the kitchen where he tacks Funk with the washing up hose. Funk's getting hit with the bin while he blindly throws burger buns over his head at Smiley. This all actually happened, by the way. I haven't taken something. This actually did happen. Um, Funk then gets thrown headfirst into a bin. We have lots of unprotected shots to the head including two with a laptop a 2000 laptop that is which is considerably heavier than the 2020 laptop um smiley ends up having a ladder removed from under him is clinging onto the pipes on the ceiling a chair shot then sees him fall to the floor through a table um i've got to say the amount of steel chairs that have been left lying around the back of the united center is terribly careless um they end up coming out into ringside and they get back to the ring um smiley is now looking confident he does the big wiggle before yeah i'm going to use the word waffling terry funk across the back with another chair shot dustin Rhodes then runs in hits funk with a chair and the pile driver onto the chair before funk makes a comeback against all the odds dispatches of Rhodes, and then drops a ladder straight onto smiley who's prone at ringside makes the cover and becomes the new wcw hardcore champion in eight minutes and two seconds uh Priscilla, what were your thoughts on this one? 
I mean, I stand corrected because I forgot about this glorious. This is 100% the match of the night in my eyes. It's amazing. Like everything you've said there is true, but like you can't sell it enough. That like when bearing in mind two weeks earlier we'd had tables, ladders, chairs. So they give you a spot where Norman Smiley is like running away, climbing up a ladder so he can hold on to the ceiling only for it to be taken away. And then Terry Funk, as in his standard old dodgery, oh, I'm doing hardcore kind of style, calmly pulls a table underneath him while Norman just looks down and screams and then just begins to waffle him with a chair repeatedly until he takes the table bump. Like at no point do they stop for a breath because Norman is either screaming and running away or Terry is busy no-selling chair shots in the back of his head while he just walks to wherever the next spot is but like every bit of this match has been thought out not only have they done an amazing job of clearing that much of the backstage area which bear in mind kevin nash was backstage but wasn't on the card so you know he was going to be doing drugs going listen you can't tell me where to go like they managed to keep that many egos out of camera shot they led it from the hulk hogan promo as well which means even more of the backstage had to be put together for it in order to stop it from actually going to hell and like every single part of this brawl has been thought out right from the throwback to the uncensored pay-per-view where they had a brawl into a toilet and accidentally walked in on someone in one of the stalls they started off with a throwback to the previous pay-per-view and they've thought about a journey and it is literally to this day in my opinion the best hardcore match i've ever seen it's pg it's family friendly it's silly ridiculous the pair of them get themselves busted to hell because terry's got cuts all over the place and it's so everything's clever None of it's particularly great, but all of it is clever, and it's better than any hardcore match I ever saw during the Attitude at WWF, and certainly better than any hardcore match I've seen since. That's 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 my opinion, anyway. Wow, Liam. Well, we kind of like the shenanigans of Norman Smiley and Terry Funk. You remember on the Uncensored show, Norman Smiley was entertaining and Terry Funk was... I mean, it was a, it was a hideous match with Dustin Rhodes. But we were, we were just laughing our asses off nonetheless. And they're bringing a lot of that here. And in that essence, it's a dream pairing. If you look at it from a purely comedy perspective, it's worth noting, though. You think this is a big time where... Russo and Bischoff are rebooting everything. All the crap from before is gone. They're starting on a great new era of people wanting to watch the show and WCW being back on their perch as number one. You notice this is one of the several times where it's actually the exact same thing we had before. They've basically vacated the hardcore title and they're getting a couple of guys who've been wrestling hardcore matches. Uh, Norman Smiley was a hardcore champion before, Brian Nobbs. And they're just putting it back on the hoop. So it's the same shit, different smell sort of thing. Um, yeah, but I think we've, we've got to be fair, though, because the Brian Nobb style is just whacking each other repeatedly with stuff and then just keep on whacking each other. But this this was thought out. And um, I just thought there as well, Dustin Rose made an appearance halfway through it as well and did a quick run and They didn't have any that feud can't that feud absolutely can't end. But yeah, my point is, is it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a recurring theme. Everything about the show... Uh, from the the people in the world title scene to the people in the US title scene to the to the nature of the feuds even uh, the fact that we've got a a lead hill faction with the word new in it who are going around spray painting things how much has actually fucking changed and I say <laughs> I say this with a, with a lot of agreement about you know if you're gonna insist on having a hardcore title in the year 2000 
yeah, stick it on Terry Funk and Norman Smiley. I, I like them both. They're funny. This was funny in, in that sort of cringy, entertaining way. And there's there's absolutely a, an opening for that on a, on a pro wrestling card. And case in point, on the next pay-per-view slamboree, uh, Smiley had a rematch, but he was allowed to have a mystery partner for it to be a handicap challenge. I don't know how it works of, about who, who is the champion. But um, can you guys, for trivia, can you guys recall who Norman Smiley picked as his mystery partner to challenge Terry Funk three weeks later? Annoyingly, I can picture him. I, I, when you say my, when you say his name, it's going to really annoy me. But I, I can't, I can't name. It was Ralphus. That's it. <laughs> and it was, it was admittedly hilarious, and it fit. To, for everything you're saying about this match at Spring Stampede, it fit that to a T. It's goofy slapstick stuff, and at this stage, that is all the hardcore title is good for. It's funny. We've just spent the last pay-per-view episode talking about how they should have made a thing. That, that, that's one thing they should have added to this match, is that Terry Funk should have taken the microphone and announced that it was now an I Quit match. <laughs> While everyone else said, actually, guys, it is not an I Quit match. Ignore these see no old doofus uh i really think they should have run with it they should have done every time he has a match he just starts trying to make it an i quit match proper senile dementia so it's a shame they didn't do that but as a a drag queen i will say that i I like the term camp and someone described the phrase camp to me as once as uh, having a genuine passion for fun and what i love about this match is it's the campest wrestling match i think i've ever seen there's just a genuine passion for putting out some fun bullshit and they make no apologies for it start to finish and then, as you say, um, Priscilla, it, it flows, it has a story. And you, you can tell, you know, Terry Funk has, has shaped this match together because it's just, yeah, everything everything happens for a reason and it, it, it keeps it keeps your attention throughout the whole thing. Whereas I think, like you said, you know, some, some of the other hardcore matches, like your Brian Nobbs style matches, where it's just, oh, he's hitting you with a chair, Plotting. he's hitting you with a chair again. You, 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 you tend to lose your lose your attention but with this you know so many things are happening is it just shows what a what a great wrestling mind terry funk had um five stars so um we then go backstage and we see a um a disagreement between russo and booker russo says he wants a favor not like that um and it's time for match number nine it's our first semi-final in the u.s title tournament as mike awesome uh, faces scott steiner um, Steiner takes Awesome down right at the start and starts working over his head and neck. Um, awesome is standing on the apron. He intercepts Steiner with a slingshot shoulder block, followed by a splash. Um, Steiner hits his trademark twisting belly to belly suplex. Um, then you can see the crowd starting to react to something that's happening off screen. Um, and as Awesome climbs to the top rope, Kevin Nash, who's presumably injured because that's Kevin Nash's default setting, smacks, uh, smacks Awesome in the back with a crutch in retaliation for Awesome doing the same thing to him on Nitro the week before. Steiner then clamps on the uh, Steiner recliners to the injured Awesome and gets a submission in just three minutes and 14 seconds. So is that another uh, another way of protecting someone that you want to keep strong by doing that with Awesome? Are you kidding me, mate? I was going to say, this is one match that's almost thankfully kind of like very, very uninteresting. You know, just quick and they get it over with. But like the first 30 seconds, if, if you were telling me Scott Steiner wasn't intentionally trying to hurt like Awesome with that takedown, going right in at his neck with the forearms, like, like totally unsafe. 
and then intentionally botches his shoulder by running as close to him as possible because Awesome's got nowhere to go, which goes badly for Steiner because he forgets that Awesome's twice his size and just pulls him over like he's nothing. But I guarantee you Steiner was like, yeah, I'm going to show this ECW punk exactly how we play because he goes in hard. He's, yeah, well, I just, I just thought he was, um, he was just working like, like Scott Steiner would work. But I mean, I, I uh, bow to your greater knowledge as the in-ring wrestler. You would know these things watching it. But um, oh, in fairness, yeah, you're right. Because to be fair, I remember thinking that about the uh, the opener as well with the wall, and I remember thinking that about every other Steiner match. So, yeah, yeah. Sorry, my bad. Steiner's just unsafe. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> And I mean, yeah, that's some of those, you know, Steiner, Steiner Brothers squash matches back in the day. Or, or of course, Liam, how can we forget WrestleWar 92? Yeah, well, I had my theory on that. It, it seemed like you had two guys there. You had, a, you had a veteran and you had a young guy who was eager. And the veteran was like, yeah, I'm not taking those crazy moves. And, and, and the young guy wants to make a name for himself. And we curry favour backstage. And he's probably, yeah, you, you show me this top rope pole driver bulldog thing. I'll take it. I'll land on my head. I'll do this. I'll do that. That was my theory on that. As for this, it's funny you use the word protect. Because six days after he arrives in the company, uh, that is the last thing they've done with Mike Awesome. A man they've gone to such great trouble to bring in. They headhunted him from ECW, went through all that shit to get this man specifically. Now, if you're if, if you're going to headhunt, whether it's in a company or when you're signing a football player or whatever, to go to that trouble, to go to that financial output, you, there must be something about that person that you can't get from anywhere else, right? Then you work, you work as a manager, come, you might have seen some of this. To, to headhunt, you, you, you want someone specific, yeah. Uh, there's no other reason you'd go to that trouble. And they've done this and they've immediately put him in the tournament where he's looked ordinary in two matches. He's lost in the second match. And that, that's this monster they've brought in. Because one, one of the things about that Nitro, because it, it, it turned a lot of heads, even while WCW was f- slipping and flailing. Uh, people for a little while really thought that this was at least going to liven things back up, this whole Russo-Bischoff thing. And one of the things that really did leave an impression was Awesome coming out of nowhere and destroying Kevin Nash. And that was a feud that people would have liked to have seen, and it was a bit refreshing. And straight away, their big threat's gone. And you'll note that there was never a, a singles match between Nash and Awesome, because what would Nash gain from, even if he was you know, bound to win, what would he have to gain from it now? Because the value's already gone. Even well, you might Hogan... have hit the nail on the head there, Liam. I think you might have something. You said about how you, you headhunt. You go, you go after someone who has a skill that nobody else could have. Maybe this skill they saw in Mike Awesome was he was the only person that could make Scott Steiner look good. Well, they tried that again because they had a US title match at Bash of the Beach 2000. It was like a repeat of this. Whereas uh, apparently, by, by all accounts, it was when Mike Awesome was going to win the title from him and I, I have you know no first-hand uh, knowledge of this but by all accounts that have, that have come up since uh, Scott Steiner did not want to go with that so he did a thing where he easily got the better of Mike Awesome but was stripped of the title for refusing to let go of the recliner so it made him look like shit there and then two months later he's the he's the 70s guy fat chick thriller so draw, draw from that what you like but they, they have absolutely 
destroyed awesome with it within six days and it's incredible to see especially when you go to that we shouldn't be surprised a company who flies people in and doesn't use them on the show would be that flippant with money but but there you go well that that is uh the story of wcw in many ways i guess yep. isn't it so after this match backstage because every match has to go backstage afterwards um, we see Vince Russo firing Dustin Rhodes for not stopping Terry Funk from winning the hardcore title, you know, because as we've established, it's so prestigious in the realms of WCW. They've just got to throw it out there as well that Vince Russo is so desperate to make sure that everybody has the context, has to quite literally on camera say, I invented Goldust. The only reason you're famous is because of me, because Russo is clearly quite concerned that all the audience watching are not aware how awesome he is based off the quality of the pay-per-view, that he's like, just in case you think this is shit, I also did Goldust. So there's something out there which I contributed towards. I'm amazed he didn't also say about The Undertaker at that stage, to be honest. This whole thing is is the mental breakdown of an extremely insecure writer, isn't it? This, this is what we're watching. It's not a wrestling show. It's a... It, it's an insight into the psyche of him at this point. And I don't at like least this show is an insight to him and not an insight to the Hogan, the Nash, the Vicious, like we normally get. It was, it was quite a nice kind of segue from our normal mental breakdowns, but you're, you're 100% right. Yeah, completely and, refreshing, sad fucking story. <laughs> and the thing the thing that I always remember about the, the Russo era, the original gold dust, was that the original gold dust was a heel and was, was quite, it was just not a particularly pleasant character. You know, it was, it was kind of portrayed as this, I think it kind of, it was portrayed to kind of tap into the, um, the homophobia of the the world. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say the, the preconception that like, anyone anyone gay would be like some predatory rapist or something do you know what i mean it's that 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 yeah the homophobia then and then and then as gold just came back he became without russo obviously he became a lot more fun and easygoing kind of character and a lot yeah more but then popular. he dropped all then he drops all of the homosexual references, which, yes. again, as, as someone who, like, literally clung to that, like, when I saw a photo of Goldust, like, his action figure at Toys R Us, I was like, oh, this is the wrestler I've been missing, and then I watched him. This this is meant to be a gay man, all right, who, who assaults his opponent sexually. Now, that's, you know, that's partly what I do, because it's partly about going, look, we need to, this is what your, what, what your perception is. So let's just play up to that to the point you realise it's ridiculous. But where it loses it for me is not so much where he looks angry and bitter all the time, not where he hates people, because trust me, that's half the gay community anyway, if not more than half. But it's the fact that at the end of it, he then kicks the guy square in the nuts. What, <laughs> in what logic is that? It's like, I really want to have you, but I don't want you to be able to actually do anything like the logic is not there at all and this promo like just like and again i i say this with a huge amount of love for dustin because i do absolutely love his work and i and i even the stuff which offended me as a child like you know now that i've come a bit more context i'm like no mate it still took a lot of guts to go out there and for a lot of people he was still a representative even if he wasn't a great one he did it but he just looks so angry Every single time I've seen him, and every single age, every single show, and this show, 
he's so unbothered by it and he's so committed to that I'm angry and I deserve better that he's eating a sandwich all the way through this promo. He doesn't even bother <laughs> to finish his mouthful to promo back. He's just like, no, 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 no. That, that's his contribution to the entire show. Just he, good job. He was hungry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. I, I have to say, though, for... From what I remember, that the the whole homophobic aspect of Goldust, that was more of a Vince McMahon trademark, I think, more than Vince Russo. Because if you think of even recent examples like Rusev, where you've got this, you know, this physical specimen, nat- natural heel, obviously, but they've decided, no, calling him Bulgarian isn't enough because in in Vince McMahon WWE's head. Bulgaria isn't a country that exists to most of their fans, so they turn him Russian. They put up pictures of Putin because they really have to go full-blown, lowest common denominator sort of thing. And that's always the impression I got out of the Goldust character was that their psyche was, you know, it started off where he was bizarre and, you know, odd and things like that. And they just amped it up more and more, especially when it got to the Razor Ramon feud. That that was the one. And it it became Rowdy Roddy Piper because Ramon didn't want anything to do with it. But um, that always struck me as a man thing. I think the thing that Russo took credit for was the, the well, well, obviously, if you think about it, the, the shoot interviews he then did where he revealed that Marlena was his actual wife. That was always Russo's pride and joy about, wasn't it? Was having shoot interviews, shoot interview for Golda, shoot interview for Jerry, shoot interviews for everyone. So, uh, well done, Russo. Let's make it really, really clear. In case you weren't aware, Goldust definitely isn't gay. Again, it was all, it was all mind work. games. And they did another cop-out, didn't they? Because you had Billy and Chuck, and they ended up yeah. taking the cop-out. Oh, don't thing. get me started on that fucking hack of shit. I literally cried and sobbed my eyes out. So did every single person in that room. The fucking only night they'd actually draw an LGBT audience, get booed out of the fucking bit. Like, oh, oh. Okay, that's a different podcast altogether. Like, yeah. Priscilla's bitterness. That's a, that's a four-hour thing in itself. But, I mean, that, that one thing from... Goldust and Marlena, you know, I'm sure that well, the whole character was had drew some inspiration from um, Exotic Adrian Street, mm. and with Exotic Adrian Street, bear in mind this was this was in in the 70s, so perceptions were were even more different to the, to how they are now. That he was he was portrayed as this flamboyant gay man with Miss Linda who was his real life wife but that was never acknowledged and he would treat her terribly and the reaction, it was a kind of a double reaction that they were getting from people which was, number one, how dare you treat that woman so terribly because he, I mean it was a, it was an amazing heat that they'd get, he'd do things like mm. get her to get down on her hands and knees and he would then use her back as a step to get into the ring things like that and so the initial reaction would be how dare you treat this woman like that and then the second reaction would be hang on a minute what are you doing with a woman anyway because you're gay or you think you're gay or that's the portrayal and in the 70s that was that was getting him him huge huge um heat and then yeah the sweet transvestite with a broken nose, the man who was meant to have a hair versus hair match with dust, uh, Dusty Rhodes and cut one of my favourite all-time promos where he runs in midway through a Dusty Rhodes match, snips his hair off, runs backstage and comes back and goes, oh, Dusty, you've got the nicest hair in the world and I'm going to liberate it from your greasy head. 
genius, genius Brilliant. stuff. I loved it. Brilliant. Anyway, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the shit show that was the Vince Rose and Dustin Reynolds promo. Well, um, yeah, there's there's the difference between it doing being done being done well and not being done well, I guess. Anyway, so we, we, we move on. Match number 10 is um, our second WCW United States tournament semi-final between Vampiro and Sting. And we're reminded that Vampiro cost Sting his match in the world title tournament. So this does have a bit of a grudge involved. And Liam, I'm guessing that Sting losing in the world title tournament, but then making it into the US title tournament, it must be a bit like when you get knocked out of the Champions League and then you get put into the Europa League. Oh, Sting has Europa League, the US title, so many times in WCW. I mean, I, th- I think he had a, a, he had a reign in 91. He lost that infamous match to Rick Rude. So that was awesome, oh, fair enough. that's brilliant. Don't get yes. me wrong. I'm not going to knock the quality of his US title tilts. I'm just going to point out the pattern here. 95, he won a tournament to become US champion. I'm struggling to think of the... I don't know if he lost it directly to the one-man gang or something. But around then, he did have a US title reign in 95. Um... And here he's having a tilt, and I think there's a couple other times where he would very often, after having a world title, his first world title was 1990, he'd have so many runs at the US title. He would Europa League the shit out of that for the span of 10 years. And I just want to quickly get in, for those who listened to episodes ago, not too familiar with this shit show that is those doing thing. Hang on a second. Weren't they a team? Weren't they the brothers in paint? Weren't this a thing that was being established? Yes, and very quickly it was on that on that Nitro, that reboot Nitro, it was literally, well, New Blood Millionaires Club. Vampiro decides he's new blood, he comes out and costing right they're they're rivals now. They're not friends, they're rivals. Just like that. Even though they keep referring to Brothers in Paint and the commentary. Yeah, it was a thing for like three weeks. And they're like, oh, no, the Brothers in Paint are split up. Three weeks, they were a team. Man. But then Russo That's loves it, his tag team splitting well. up. Yes. Sorry, Sorry. Mark Madden telling each other off. Sorry, babes. Uh, yeah, you've got Madden like telling each other off as well. We're going to stop doing the Brothers in Paint thing. No, I will do the Brothers in Paint. No, it's it's over now. We're done. Like, they have an argument about it midway through. It's lovely stuff. Oh, man. So um, Vampiro starts quickly attacking Sting while he's still got his trench coat on. Sting makes a comeback. Um, Vampiro is either genuinely hurt or is selling better than he's ever sold before at this point. Um, Sting gets a two count following a spectacular looking top rope splash. He misses a stinger splash into the guardrail and this allows Vampiro back in. And yes, they are throwing everything at it in the first few minutes. So, you know, this one isn't going long either. Um, Vampiro attempts a top rope drop kick. Sting tries to counter with a powerbomb, doesn't quite catch him right, ends up sort of swatting him away while Sting falls backwards. Undeterred, though, Sting goes straight back to his opponent, hits the Scorpion Death Drop, locks on the Scorpion Death Lock, and gets a submission win in 5 minutes 59 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, like, I think it's quite clear that Kevin Nash, having just swooped his way through the locker room, has cleared up the last of the drugs because Vampiro is clearly on a come down during this match. He is wobbling around. He is missing. Like like you said, there's something going on because there's like a good two, three points where he just, like he goes up for, for probably about the 10th top rope close on of the night and then just goes, nah, that ain't happening. He botches a diving, spinning wheel kick. Sting just kind of palms him away midway into a kind of power bomb, at which point Sting goes, 
okay, you know what? This match has gone to shit. All my moves in a row, and we're done, thankfully. It just is what it is. But you know, one thing I noticed with this, and also thinking about the Hogan-Kidman thing, where the table didn't break, Mm. on both of those instances, obviously you've got two guys who are massive long-term veterans. Something goes wrong. It's gone quite obviously wrong, but they just carry on. You know, Hogan just decides to do something else, a body slam that he knows will break the table. Sting knows that the next spot is to to um, hit the scorpion death drop on his opponent. He just picks him up and does that move. And it's just like, just don't carry on as normal. Don't don't worry about... <laughs> Acknowledging anything that's happening, which is yeah. a great analogy for the whole event, really, isn't it? It's gone longer <laughs> than what you're starting. Let's just carry on. That's very true. <laughs> very true indeed. Liam, what do you make of this one? Oh, man, I, I love me some Sting, but... He really made Vampiro look like a bitch in his whole program, didn't he? And it got worse at Slamboree. It was a more emphatic win for Sting. So it makes you wonder what the whole point of this new Blood Million is. Already it's been portrayed kind of how Kevin Sullivan's WCW was. Only now there's elaborate stables. They, they are under two different roofs and they're saying, yeah, we're the young guys, we're the veterans. Whereas that was that was unspoken in the storylines of the Kevin Sullivan era. So nothing's really changed. They're just being more out and out about it. Yeah, we're, we're the up-and-comers and we're getting the shit kicked out of us by the, these 50-year-olds. Yeah. It's just, it's shoot WCW as opposed to vaguely subtle WCW. The, the only thought that's got into this feud at all is those two guys wear face paint. They better fight, which it is just, you know, lazy booking in my mind. Mm. Okay, we shall move on. So um, Mean Gene is backstage with DDP and Kimberly. Um, DDP says he's aiming to become three-time WCW World Champion. He also wants us to let Kimberly get revenge on Jarrett because Jarrett smacked her over the head with his guitar previously. Um, we then go back to the ring. We see Shannon Moore and Shane Helms of Three Count in the ring, cutting the promo when Lash LaRue, the artist in the crowbar, and, and crowbar, not the crowbar, all attack him. Um, the bell rings, and then Juventud Guerrero and Chris Candido get in the ring, and I guess we've got a match. Um, and this is match number 11. It's a six-way match for the vacant WCW Cruiserweight title. So it's Shannon Moore, Lash LaRue, The Artist, Juventud Guerrero, Chris Candido, and Crowbar. And um, it's good to see the Cruiserweight title's given such high importance that no one's given any on-screen graphic, no intros, and the participants just randomly show up in the ring. Um... This match has got two wrestlers in the ring and the other four on the apron awaiting a tag, or at least that's how it's supposed to work. In true WCW form, and uh, going back to something you said previously, Priscilla, no one has said if it's elimination on the first four that wins it. Um, Given how little importance the cruiserweights are given, I'd imagine it's first four to cut their on-screen time. Um, Daphne tries to go for a top rope Hurricane Rana, but she accidentally lands it on Crowbar. We then have the trademark series of dives to the outside by everyone. Shannon Moore just about lands on LaRue. Um, with everyone brawling at ringside, we're left with the artist and Candido in the ring. Artist climbs to the second rope, but then Tammy Sitch, who appears to be wearing... Uh, sorry, who's wearing what appears to be uh, her underwear and a see-through dressing gown borrowed from a 70s housewife in a Monty Python It was a different time. It was a different time, Priscilla. Shoves artist off the top into the canvas. Um, She pushes 
Candido onto the artist for the match-winning pinfall in just five minutes, 12 seconds. Candido's the new Cruiserweight champion. All the focus is on Tammy. The artist's valet Paisley then attacks Tammy for the standard catfight spot because it was a different time. <laughs> so six Cruiserweights get five minutes. No, not just six crews. Like this is this match alone is the greatest summary of the whole show because it's not six cruiserweights. It's David Flair. It's Shane Helms. It's fifteen women, one of whom for some reason is wearing purple pajama like bodysuit. Like don't get me wrong, like I'm all for a, a latex bodysuit. Like, but I prefer on myself. Don't get me wrong. But like, why you've got that pattern on it? I don't know. But like, it's just. First of all, Las LaRue deserves an absolute medal for saving like six people's lives at various points. <laughs> like, Shannon Moore runs off, takes this huge back body job from in the ring to the floor from his tag partner Shane Helms. Like, which I guess is a cool dive if there's people waiting, but when there's nobody waiting, it's just Shane Helms trying to kill his tag partner. And Las LaRue <laughs> catches it out of one eye and goes, Oh my god, and just dives underneath him. Like, it's an absolute. Hell of a save of a catch. And Shane, Shannon Moore's career would have ended in that instant had he not been there. Lashley does his, his one-night stand move. Again, Alex, if you're listening, give me a booking. Uh, he's the only person who actually executes a nice move the whole evening. Um, we've got Daphne, who I can only imagine is letting us know the kind of sound she makes in the bedroom when she looks at Hoobie and goes, Hoobie! And my personal favourite moment of the whole match is, you know what, I've just, yeah, that's it. Tuvan Guerra goes up top rope. Again, remember, first time I've seen a single match in my life that's been named Cruiserweight. Going into it thinking Cruiserweights are crazy. I know Hoover does a 450 splash. We get the line, Hooven one of the innovators of the high-flying Cruiserweight division. I'm sat there on my edge of my seat, and what we see is a diving clothesline. Oh, just, it's just so bad that it's great in every way. Yeah, so first off, Priscilla, Alex Shane is definitely not listening. He's ghosted us long enough for long enough for us to know that he's probably not listening. We'll leave we'll leave Super Bowl three open for him for like another couple of years, and then we'll give up on that one. <laughs> just just five, what would you say, Dean? Just another five six years, and then absolutely moving on from Alex Shane doing Super Bowl three. I do have someone else who has approached us about doing Super Bowl 3, I have to say. We'll give, it, we'll give him that last seven or eight years to come forward and do Super Bowl 3 of us. And then that is it. We are done with Alex Shane. That's just, just another nine or ten years, and that is it. I've, got, I've really got to be strict on this one. Um, this is another example of, like with a hardcore match, is that... It's ultimately the right decision, you know, to put the belt on Candido. That was where they were headed before uh, the reboot. But then that's the problem. Uh, yeah, it kind of makes sense from that. But what has actually changed? Always talk about uh, we're, we're going to start things over. It's the same. Sh- it's the Kevin Sullivan show. But you've just got Russo and Bischoff front and centre and an elaborate storyline for the fact that the the veterans are having their way with the younger characters at all times. So, yeah, I made a joke earlier about the five five minutes for the Cruiserweights being a constant. And, yeah, here we are. Mm. Oh, man. 
It's, it was, yeah, I just felt so sorry for those guys, basically. But it, yeah, it was, it was wrestled on fast forward for obvious reasons. Okay, we're backstage with Mean Gene and Jeff Jarrett, who states that he has Russo and Bischoff behind him, because as we've already established, the people booking the company are more important than the wrestlers. But it is now time for our three tournament finals to crown new oh, champions. Oh, sorry, Dean. Yes. Uh, before we pass on, I wanted to ask both you gents, because maybe it's just me not knowing WCW properly, but... What on earth is a slap nut? Because Jarrett seems very confident about this term, and to me, it's always been confusing. So basically, you're, you're as a guy in the industry, I'm guessing you're familiar with the whole thing. Like Dean likes to say a few times, uh, if you take something obscure and repeat it often enough, people, in wrestling fans, will embrace it. Ah, uh-huh, yeah, sure. Uh, and, and, and as far as I know, that's literally it. And I kind of like, you know, he just <laughs> made up a silly word. They kept saying, made it his own. It's the essence of wrestling catchphrase 101. But it's WCW in its latter years and it's Jeff Jarrett. So <laughs> the core yeah, factor yeah, I mean, like, washes away. Try, but yeah. yeah, it just kind of wafts off into the distance, doesn't it? Yeah. But okay. as, you'll, as you'll hear when you listen back to this episode, we can't say too much bad about Chosen One Jeff Jarrett because he endorses this podcast. And it was so cool that Joe, when we got to interview Jeff at time, you know, he's a great guy away from the ring. And it was so cool. I, I, I said to him, could you give us a little, uh, an, an ident, a little Vox Pop to say, yeah, this is those. Uh, and I was just about to go. Uh, it would be great if you could maybe tap into that those the persona to do it. Mm. I've got two words into that thought. And he goes to me, right, right, I got it. Pause. And he just goes, listen up, slab nuts, goes fully into it. As you hear on every episode, I just thought, yeah, he, he gets it. I mean, I've got a lot of respect for Jeff as a as a wrestler. But yeah. Oh, he was stand o- out on this show. O- obviously, yeah, obviously seeing him, seeing him in a in a world title scenario for a constant of six to eight months just didn't wash. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Jeff Jarrett when he isn't like overdone, you could say, I suppose. Overexposed. I, I think... I've got a little bit of bitterness towards this particular promo. The only reason is because about six months later, I was in the car with my grandparents being a little kid and was repeating lines. And I shouted out, listen up, slap nuts, you old Geritol. And my granddad pulled over, started crying. And my grandma explained to me that Geritol was an insulting thing to call an old person. So in fairness, like, it's really nothing against him at all. It's just the fact that I put my foot in it massively and they never, ever forgave me for it. So, you know, it's... uh, So you don't forgive yeah, it's understandable. <laughs> yeah, just I, I remember. I think it was because um, in WWF, Rock was calling people jabronis and stuff like that, and they need yeah, and, and they wanted a, an insulting term to uh, to call their own, and, and slap nuts was created. That, <laughs> that wouldn't surprise so, me. That wouldn't surprise he was, me. Uh, yeah, even, even though even though he was a heel, they tried to merchandise it. It's very weird. It certainly beats Russo's. You're a piece of shit on the bottom of my <laughs> shoes. <laughs> yeah, that's never going to get on a T-shirt, Russo. Come on. Um, so, yes, it's time for our three finals. It's all New Blood v. Millionaires Club. Um, so, tag team tournament final is up. First team package v. Shane Douglas and Buff Bagwell. Flair is still in his slacks. Um Actually, I'm just thinking, well, they, they said that it was all three finals were New Blood v Millionaires Club, but DDP isn't in the Millionaires Club. He was sort of on his own, wasn't he? No, he was in the Millionaires Club. They did the thing on um, 
on that first Nitro where he was one of the guys listening to that opening promo where another Russo staple where all the roster is in, in the ring and outside the ring to listen to him like a like a mass rally gathering for a presidential candidate. I'm shocked Russo didn't go on to say that there was like five times more people than there actually was there. Um, but Fair it, enough. Yeah, and they, they had some of those back. So it was always like that. Uh, and he was part of the whole thing where they, they would rally the Millionaires Club by uh, jettisoning their limousines and their and their big money ways of getting it. And they'd actually start riding a bus around. And as you can imagine, that bus will become a weapon in some of the storylines. Because if, if there's one thing Russo is not, is unoriginal. He wouldn't just recycle the same garbage he was doing in WWE. God, no. Paris is not him. So, um, Flair is still in his slacks. Um, and I'm thinking about Shane Douglas's anti-Flair promos in ECW. And now here he is working with him. Um, the commentators do acknowledge that there's been heat and state that Flair ran Douglas out of WCW previously. And that Douglas has been calling him out in other promotions. Um, Douglas and Bagwell are accompanied by Vince Russo because we haven't seen him on screen for about 30 minutes. And Russo joins the commentary table and predicts a win for the New Blood team. Um, Luger reminds me earlier on why I hate his clotheslines. Within a couple of minutes, it's Flair v. Douglas, and Douglas is selling away for him. Um, he tags in Bagwell, and then the New Blood team are making quick tags and have singled out Flair on team package. Um, at one point, Douglas backs Flair into the corner right by the camera, climbs to the ropes through the old 10-punch routine and says, fuck you, Flair, before laying the punches in. Um, Luger eventually makes the hot tag and cleans house. Luger's in the corner with Bagwell while Flair locks in the figure four on Douglas, but then Russo leaves his commentary position, goes to ringside with his baseball bat in his hand. Bagwell accidentally hits Douglas with the buff blockbuster, but Russo pulls referee Nick Patrick out of the ring before he can make the three count. They have a shoving match at ringside while the match continues. Then Russo fails to... Now, this is another thing that's like the prime role of a manager in these spots. Russo fails to distract Nick Patrick for the requisite amount of time, so Patrick turns around to see Chronic enter the ring right in front of him when he's not supposed to see them. They hit their high times finisher on Luger. Russo takes Patrick's referee shirt off, puts it on himself, counts to three, and Douglas and Bagwell are the new WWE World Tag Team Champions. But everything is, of course, centered around Vince Russo. Just dreadful. And, like, I, I, I just, like, the, the shoving match between him and Patrick goes on for so long. It's like watching, um, you know, you get these things on the, on the desk, the, the, the little metal balls that bang each other back and forth, and, like, nothing actually happens. You just watch <laughs> yeah. and go back and forth. That's that, that's that sort of match. There's at least eight shoves that go on between them. And then, as you say, the whole point of it is to build to the distraction, which then doesn't happen. The referee still sees it. Yeah. And again, my takeaway from the night is like, it's not just that Flair and Luger have lost, it's that they've had to go against not two teams in this tournament, but four teams plus Vince Russo and a baseball bat has been required in order to finally put them down. And Flair hasn't even bothered to get changed for the affair. Like, they're not supermen at the end of the day. They're both like old codgers, and that's literally the story we're going into is these two are old, so they need to stand aside. Oh, Russo says all my guys are jobbers, and to prove it, it's going to take an army of them to almost beat you and just kind of cheat again. It's just 
no, 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 no. I, I would imagine that either Russo and Nick Patrick started their shoving too early or more likely Chronic came down a bit too late and they didn't quite hit their cue, which is why Patrick was turning around thinking it had been done by now. But well, Chronic like, see all of the above. Yeah, they're all but, just but, exhausted. They haven't even done anything. They're tired yeah. on the way, and they're running. I'm not surprised. They probably have to take a break halfway down. Yeah, but the the thing with that is, you know, as the as the heel, you are the one who is facing the action. You communicate. It's not difficult. You communicate with the other person, with the referee, just to say, you know, you talk you talk to them in character, and then under your breath say, "Stay with me," or "Don't turn around yet," or "Now turn mm. around," or whatever. It's not difficult, but they well, fucking Vince Russo. Well, to yeah. be fair, with Russo he's just really not that engaging no matter what he says you just want to look away from him so I don't <laughs> also on, on that point then I have to follow up as a man who's been in that position I have to ask if, if you are distracting I'd imagine you could also just physically distract the person because it doesn't look out of character if you grab hold of the referee and you're like messing Absolutely. around with because you can do you can literally keep them away from the action because in the storyline you're trying to keep them away from the action yeah so it's I have... also a se- sort of a semi shoot isn't it but you're, you're, yeah. you're obviously doing it gently yeah because yeah i have i have grabbed people around the shoulders before uh, and then if you sense them turning as if to turn around and it's not time you just give them a, a sharp tug back towards you just to say no stay stay facing me yeah. and then you know and then when you're done either you let go or you give them a very subtle push away to kind of say now now go it's, you know it's yeah. not like it's not like you're saving someone from going over the top rope in a battle royal because they're not due out yet you are yeah. what you are doing is in line with what your character is doing so you might as well just physically and that's what russo she should just physically grab the referee relax rules and all that you don't even need to be that subtle and that in my mind that's being subtle. I, I, this is a little thing that i've done a few times and those of you workers out there listening you can have this for free but like i will literally go as far as being like listen here referee you're meant to be looking at me i'm the man right now you keep looking at me sunshine i'm gonna tell you when you turn around if you do it with enough conviction you can literally just say exactly what you mean well, especially as a heel yeah this is the point you can you can pretty much stay in line with your character you can all it's almost mm. shooting whereas like i use the example of the battle royal if if someone's about to fall out the ring and you've got a you, you've got to try to like stop them from falling out but look like yeah. you are trying to tip them over they, you are actually trying to defy what you're portraying whereas with this you can literally just shoot that, that was just a thing I, I thought i'd ask you guys about as for this match it was just a 101 greatest hits collection of all the smoke and mirrors gimmicks that we associate with the attitude era. And let's for, let's remember, as cool as it was culturally, as far as the actual content, a lot of the attitude era was dross, and a lot of it led to uh, drug addictions and things like that. And that's one of the side effects well, I, I, I get. It, it um, was a period of wrestling where Road Dog was getting singles matches. Like it was a dark yeah. period for wrestling. It was it was great. It was great for for what they were. Like achieving, and this is one of the things that mm. Russo seems to have got crosswise. He he seems to think that he he was putting together this great thing, whereas uh, his one main contribution was he recognised in in like the mid nineties that you know there did need to be an edgy thing. But anyone who watched DCW could have told Vince McMahon that he, Russo yeah, was the one who happened to have his ear at the time. 
Mm. It's the state of TV in general, though. Like, we all remember that kind of period fondly. We say the MTV era. But let's face it, on the other things on MTV was Sex Etcher and Euro Trash. Like, it just mm. was not a classy time. It was a great time to be alive and an amazing time to watch television. But, like, there's a reason why most of that stuff has been scrubbed from the internet and scrubbed from things like Netflix and Prime. You will not find those shows appearing on mm. any of those channels. Yeah, exactly. the, hottest, the hottest show at the time was Jerry Springer. Oh dear! Yeah. You know, well, that, that was, is that is Russo one hundred and one. Jerry yeah, Springer. Yes. Right. What was Jerry? Um, what was Jerry Springer? Jerry Springer was worked confrontations. There you are. That's exactly what this is. Um, and um, also, I also wanted to point out the the funny thing about this whole bringing up the shoot of of Shane Douglas and Ric Flair and their backstory. Um, this was something they actually did. You, you remember the Revolution stable in WCW, Ooh. which was essentially, when I say about them tr- maybe trying an old versus new thing in 99, but with the new guys as the as the baby faces, uh, that kind of just like prittled off because you had those guys like Benoit, Malenko, Saturn, and then Shane Douglas showed up after he left ECW, started cutting promos about Ric Flair being a cancer that needs to be removed from WCW, and kind of became the mouthpiece for that group that was the revolution and then uh, the, the most effective thing they ever did was the babyface turn for Benoit where they kicked him out of the group but all this stuff they were trying this a year everything about this was tried a year ago and it's all just it, it's all superficial none of it's actually been done this, if the storyline was ever going to happen it would have happened a year before but instead we're just getting all, all this shit under the guise of, yeah, we're, we're going to pull the trigger on it. It doesn't help that Ric Flair just doesn't acknowledge this either. Like, again, typical Shane Douglas, Ric Flair, the story of Shane's career, bless him. He worked so hard on building that heat for years. And even when they're literally spoofing it on a plate, going, right, okay, you guys are going to face off. Flair's still just annoyed at Bischoff to the point that he's wearing his street clothes. Like, there's just, there's no acknowledgement from it at all. Shane's going, listen here, you piece of shit. Flair doesn't care. Yeah. Did you ever hear that story that Douglas relayed? Because a lot of people think, oh, you know, I'm I'm on Flair's side of this. Who the fuck is Shane Douglas? He's nothing. Flair's a legend. But Douglas did tell one story that really, for, for me, I don't know, I think I've relayed this to you before, Dean, where he said where it all started, where his bitterness towards Flair, and he was very quite on it, rather than just being the guy who, you know, just swears and insults the guy he doesn't like, you know, typical embittered shoot interview. He, he tells a story about when he was in WCW uh, initially, and he he would speak to Flair, and Flair would offer himself up as a as a veteran who would give advice and would, you know, take him under his wing and look out for him and things like that. And Douglas was very enthusiastic and excited about this. And and he would come to Flair, but based on what Flair initially said, and he'd pick his brain about things. Did you see that spot? Did you think I should do this? Do you think I should do that? And he was, after a few times, Douglas said he was starting to get the impression that Flair's, um, Flair's feedback and Flair's enthusiasm for this was all um, lip service. So he decided to put it to the test. Uh, where he mm. had a match on a show and he went up to Flair and he said, um, so what did you think of my match today? Was it good enough? Was it was it all right? Should I change something? And Flair was like, no, it was great. You you stole the show, buddy. It was brilliant. And he goes, uh, what would you think about that crossbody spot? Uh, do you think I pulled it off okay? And he goes, 
bro, you, you pulled it better than Steamboat. Better than Steamboat. And that really sold it for Shane Douglas that he he was feeding him a load mm. of shit. Mostly because, in Douglas's own words, he didn't actually do any cross-body blocks in that match. He just yeah. he said he said that to set up the trap. And he got that impression that it was all it was all politics, all lip service, and that that in his mind it painted Flair as a as a disingenuous person, and that's where it all started. And that, and obviously you got Paul Heyman putting you up as your headline star, saying you know Heyman knows how to to wind people up and, and get the best out of them. So he's saying you know let that, spew it all out. You remember Steve Austin in ECW? He just gives them a mic and says get all your angst out, and that's that's what made ECW great. <laughs> Oh, it's brilliant stuff. Um, and you, um, uh, like, the thing with Shane is I always loved his wrestling. Like, his matches were, like, they were well put together. I, obviously, not on Swing Stampede 2000, but uh, for pretty much any other show he was on, he's generally very good at building matches. Even when he's in a best of five tables match where the announcers don't even know what the rules are, the match itself, despite it being eight minutes, is still well built. Um, but I, every time he comes up, the thing I always think about is um, is Steve Carino and how he has heat with Shane Douglas. I don't know if you guys know about this. No. So Carino talked about it in one of his podcasts. And hey, Carino, if you're listening, do you feel free to send me a little flight so I can get over to your end and go for that steak you promised me four years ago? Anyway, um, he told me, uh, well, so he said on his podcast that he always hated Douglas. And the reason why he did, and I think this is just the most adorable thing to have someone hate for, is that uh, Carino paid for a ticket to go see WWF and he was like third row and it was his first live show and he'd gone there so excited for it, absolutely made up and Shane Douglas in the opening match and he's like, oh my God, yeah, it's going to be great. I've seen him on TV and he sits there and within 30 seconds, he's heard Shane Douglas go, okay, man, under one, they'll take your crossbody, they will get up and do this. And then with a broken heart, he witnessed the spot happen exactly as Shane called it. And he said, look, I, I know it's not his fault per se, and I have no real reason to have heat with him, but he's the reason I realised wrestling was a work and I've never <laughs> forgiven him for it. And I just love that. Oh, I was always man, a fan I did not of, know that story. I was always a fan of Steve Carino's Iron Sheik impression, personally. I don't know if you've seen that YouTube video. <laughs> no. no but this is oh, I've got to dig up that. Though. Oh, yeah, I've got to dig up that. Hell, we're, we're doing... You notice when we do the absolute worst of those two pay-per-views, that's when we deviate off. We once got out of covering matches on Halloween Havoc 92 by going on a side rant with our guest, um, MMA comist Dave Doyle, by going on a side rant about Herb Abrams and his company. <laughs> oh, now, he, Herb Abrams is, um, is one of the people featured on Dark Side of the Ring, and I cannot express how much I'm looking forward to watching <laughs> that one. I've got to say, the, um, the, the person who made me realise that wrestling was not entirely genuine um, was Big Daddy, just from the Big Daddy Formula Tag Matches. Oh, and how easy, all, easy yeah, now. How all these invincible heels would uh, would just run at him and fall over. But, um, <laughs> but they, there you go. Um, anyway, we better, get, we better get back to <laughs> yeah, this. Do we have um, to? Only got two more matches to go. So after a Scott Steiner promo where he says he represents no one himself and then talks about how big his arms is, it's time for the US title tournament final. It is Sting v. Scott Steiner. Steiner enters the ring first, and then we go back to Mean Gene backstage with Sting, whose promo is all about Bischoff and Russo. 
Um, Steiner starts off fast, which makes sense because they've both wrestled twice tonight already. Um, having said that, they're both used to doing that on WCW pay-per-views because how many times have we seen that? Um, well, there's the Starcade 95. Didn't Sting wrestle three times on that one, Liam? Yeah, that, and, oh, oh, um, they set up so that certain people could have wrestled three times, but I think in the end, a shed load of them wrestled twice. Yeah. Um, and on, been on that one, Dean, did, did, yeah. did Sting, uh, in that, that classic one, was Sting into it enough that he actually bothered to redo his makeup, or was he like this one where he just given up by the end of the first match? No, he's, like, he's, ah. his, makeup's, his makeup's um, the same from before, but... He wrestled Sting two is... straight matches. He, he actually wrestled back-to-back. He won oh, the World enough. Cup final, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, so he won the game seven sort of match to win the World Cup for Team Team WCW USA with Chris Benoit in it, and then he was straight into the triangle match, which was yeah. not like your typical triple threat match. And then it also happened in Starcade '92 when they did a battle bowl and a King of Cable tournament mm. and stuff as well. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> again. Um, so again, Bad so belief. Steiner um, stops for a moment to get into an argument with the woman at ringside. The pace is slow, but the offense is high impact, which makes sense. I've said, and you know, it's Steiner at the start, all Steiner at the start of this one. Um, Steiner goes for a top rope belly to belly suplex. Sting fights him off, and now Sting's on the offense, hitting an early Stinger splash. He goes for a second one, but Steiner pulls the ref in the way then uh shades of undertaker as vampiro appears from under the ring coming through the canvas and he drags sting down under the ring with him vampiro appears a few moments later with sting who's now bleeding from his mouth and is barely moving steiner locks in the steiner recliner for the win in a mere five minutes 33 seconds steiner is the new u.s champion all of his wins have been somewhat dubious um the referee nearly falls down the hole in the canvas and boards that's been left by Vampiro and they've of quickly got to work the main event with a ring with a fucking great big hole in it um, so yes what did you make of our, our semi-main event I mean apart from just once again noticing that Steiner has potatoes on potatoes on biceps it's just it is what it is the, the, the match is literally there just to build for the, the rip out of the floor kind of spot with Vampiro which I love I love I love and I, and to this day and if you, if you know how they do this I don't want to know because it's true magic to me when when someone comes out or gets put through a hole in the ring I just it, I love it and it was the first time I saw it and my heart cried with joy just like my penis did when Hogan came out and did his spots earlier but <laughs> Nevertheless, like this match, this match takes away from the US title so much. Like the whole card has been built, all, like good half of the, literally seven of the 14 matches have been built around the US title. And I'm so bothered about Sting, who looks like he's actually died with blood pouring from his mouth from this awesome angle that I couldn't care less about the US title. It's just like Sting, Sting Steiner's barely there in the background at that point. Yes, not like Russo's writing to be so overtly loud you forget the main point of everything. That's not like <laughs> him all. at all. Uh, I also want to point out that this this brand spanking new era for WCW where all the crap that got them in trouble in the first place is gone and they turned over a fresh leaf and it's all going to be good from here on in. They're going to go back to being number one and everything is hunky-dory. Um, we have just seen... Scott Steiner win the vacant United States title at Spring Stampede. Uh, and at Spring Stampede 1999, he won the tournament final for the vacant 
US title. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this is this is extremely new. Oh dear. Deja vu. Wow. Okay, it's then time for our main event for the vacant WCW World Heavyweight title. We see a video package showing the tournament progress so far. Um, and um, yes, here we are, match 14, WCW World Heavyweight title, Jeff Jarrett v. Diamond Dallas Page. Um, before Mark, you um, go on, I will say that the young kid me who'd never seen this show before, who didn't understand the concepts because he hadn't seen WCW, this was for me the first point in that video package in the whole night that someone had contextualised the fact that all the titles have been stripped. They don't specifically say it in a clear, this is the story. They kind of drop it at points on the commentary. But as like, you know, kids have short attention spans and you're busy watching the guys doing the stuff when when you're younger. So it's the only time they take the time to tell me as a kid, oh, by the way, this is what's going on. So I'd be clueless up until that point. Yeah, it's um it would have been ideal to do that right at the beginning, but yeah, it wasn't made at all clear. I know what you mean. Um Mark Madden, to me, I don't know what you guys thought, but Mark Madden is just getting really annoying on commentary by constantly calling Diamond Dallas Page DD me. Um, the irony. Yeah, it doesn't. Well, he's, it, he's been annoying right from the first thirty seconds he won the camera. Indeed, he has. Glared at the screen. It's just unbearable. But to me, it it doesn't help DDP get over as a babyface because none of the other commentators argue back to to argue to back up DDP. It just makes because they're terrified and mad and everything he says. They're like, okay, <laughs> they just don't, they don't say anything against yeah. anything. I just, I just don't understand. I mean, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you an example from from my commentary. It's like where um in when I was in um IPW, and we had our one of our headliners, Rob Lynch, um formerly one half of the the London Riots tag team. Then that broke up because of circumstances with his tag partner. I won't go into here, but basically, the story around Rob Lynch was that he had a a real life kind of hard hard time story and he'd you know picked himself up from the from rock bottom and built himself back up again as a singles wrestler and all of this was factored into real life and it got people behind him and it got sympathy and empathy and understanding so as the heel commentator i would be saying oh god i can't stand this guy he's always got this sob story he's always whining always crying you know all this sort of stuff but then that relied on ricky slatter who is an excellent and underrated commentator who did the commentary with me as the babyface commentator to come back and say, what the hell are you talking about? He, this is what's happened and just build up Rob Lynch as a, a sympathetic babyface character. But when no one is actually arguing back against Mark Madden, it just renders the whole thing pointless apart from, as you've hinted at Liam, to draw attention to Mark Madden, which isn't what a commentator should be doing. Also, also, Dean, it's worth pointing out that if you're complaining on commentary about the negative feelings you have about someone with a genuine positive story, you sound like a dick, which is the idea. Whereas if Madden moans about DDP being selfish, we've got no reason to believe that Madden's actually being right. And he's he's uh, cutting the legs off the, the main baby face on the show. If he's going to rip into Paige, he needs to do it in a way where he's obviously wrong, which was something that Heenan always got. 
Yes. And we've had a bit of controversy at the moment with Jerry Lawler making like a, a racially distasteful comment. And a lot of people have tried to defend it by saying, oh, you know, Heenan would say the, the flying jalapeno and Jesse would say Chico Santana. And I think the bit, the big thing that betrays, yes, it, you could say it's a different time. But the main thing they did is they did it in a way that they were clearly the arsehole. And as you said, they would always have a gorilla monsoon saying, what are you talking about? Why are you being a dick? Yeah, and... the, old, the old gorilla monsoon, will you stop to Bobby Heenan? Classic Making lines. it yeah. clear he was being inappropriate. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's actually... let's, let's, let's not forget earlier, Mark Madden is in that real clear moment going, oh, Hogan is here for his pay-per-view bonus. He's made it clear already that he tells the truth. Because again... No one fights him on that. And it's so clearly, obviously, the truth. But again, as a fan, I'm watching it going, DDP must be a bit of a dick. It's just yeah. it does not work. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, rant over. So hopefully this match will be given a bit of time because it's their first match of the night. Um, so far, <laughs> no match has gone longer than eight minutes on this show. Um, so um, the match quickly goes outside the ring. Paige holds Jarrett's arms behind his back to allow Kimberly to give him a very decent looking slap across the face. Um, the wrestlers then start fighting in the crowd as this was what was happening throughout wrestling in 2000. Um, back at ringside, Jarrett uses Kimberly as a human shield to, to uh, gain a temporary advantage over DDP. Jarrett lands a superplex, grabs a chair from ringside and hits DDP across the back with it. Um, Tony Schiavone on commentary actually mentions the WWF by name, which really surprised me um, by saying that Jarrett came to uh, WCW with Russo from the WWF. Uh, Jarrett finds a plant at ringside with a copy of DDP's book so he can grab it and rip it up. That's smart marketing by DDP. Um, Bischoff then appears in the aisle as Jarrett and Paige start fighting in his general vicinity. Jarrett pulls DDP's groin into the ring post once, tries it again, but Kimberly pulls him off no not like that ddp then regains the advantage and returns the favor to jarrett with the ring post bischoff then starts slowly walking to ringside we see uh kimberly is holding jarrett's guitar at ringside too jarrett locks on the figure four in the center of the ring but ddp won't submit he tries it again but page tries a quick small package for a two count both men are getting desperate uh, Jarrett then catches DDP in a sleeper hold. DDP reverses it and Bischoff grabs the ref on the ring apron. Kimberly climbs onto the apron on the other side of the ring as DDP hits the diamond cutter. But Kimberly wants to clock Jarrett with the guitar in revenge as she gets into the ring. Kimberly, though, hits Paige instead intentionally, which allows Jarrett to hit the stroke. Bischoff then stops distracting the ref to enable him to make the three count in 15 minutes and two seconds to crown Jeff Jarrett as the new world champion, thanks to the uh, interference of Bischoff and the swerve by Kimberly. The rest of the new blood stable come out to celebrate with Jarrett as the show goes off the air. So basically we have Russo involved in the finish of the world tag title match and Bischoff involved in the world title finish. I mean, as messy as it was, I've got to say, I thought this was a great main event to set off what was a bizarre, crazy journey. Like, it, the thing the, where, where I begin to go, oh, okay, maybe Russo and Bischoff had, had something, is that match was clearly the main event in every way. It yeah. goes twice as long as anything else. It, 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 the nice thing about it is I, at the time, was a bit kind of disenfranchised with WWF because I was busy going, oh, I like all the guys who do cool moves, but the main event guys, 
and like the Austins, the Triple H's and the Rocks, the great entertainers as they are, me only having Sunday Night Heat and not investing in those characters used to feel very, very put out when I watched the WF pay-per-view and would see these guys I didn't know just punch each other for 40 minutes. Instead, these guys, they, they hit all the points, they get the sleeper holes, they get the figure fours, the rest holes, they build up the drama. But everything in between is so cool. Like everything, all the spots, the land, you've got nice power bombs, discus clotheslines, the run-ins, unlike the rest of the show, aren't particularly messy. Okay, I could have done without Eric Bischoff's, like, I don't want to say hair. I'm going to say he, I, I reckon, I reckon he had alopecia. And instead of being able to afford to get a wig, he just went into the backyard and found a badger, shoved that on his head, because whatever was going on with his hair, I don't know. But, like, I enjoyed it, and it was a good, fun main event that didn't bore me, but compared to the rest of the show, felt like a lengthy match. And and you say, I only cut away 15 minutes of my life. So, yeah, it wasn't... Compared compared to other pay-per-views I've seen in WCW, I thought it was a lovely little main event. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Paige and Jarrett is with, with their work rates, they're, they're, they're just not going to have a bad match, even under bad circumstances. I'll give you a quick example. Sure. I'll save some of the best stuff for when we cover Slambury 2000, but they would rematch infamously there in the triple-decker cage with David Arquette defending the world title. we yes. so much to cover. I'll hold back on, on most of it. Well, maybe we get you back on, Priscilla, for that particular uh, turd of a pay-per-view. But oh, there you God, are. I love there, it. There you are, though. There you are. And you'll agree with some of what I'm about to say. They, they, you've got this this David Arquette thing and all that, and they, they've done this over-exuberant triple cage. But as Dean might remember, when we covered Uncensored 96 with that eight-on-two farce of a triple-decker cage, oh. and not only was it not only was it oh. a joke with Hogan and Savage trouncing everyone, but the cage itself was, was ridiculous. Whereas this mm-hmm. ready-to-rumble cage, I will go on record as saying, I'll fight anyone who disagrees, I can't believe that someone hasn't tried to redo that cage. It must be just but, an expense thing, or, uh, or the fact that the WWE he doesn't like to do things that originated in WCW but that cage was great and so you've got the structure of this cage and the way they're climbing up to reach the belt and you've got Paige and you've got Jarrett and I enjoyed most of that match just because of those two doing this gimmick that should have worked in another context so yeah, it's a great match it's a great like you know for considering the time everything should have gone to hell it's really well done and and i will say as well their other one that they did the other uh, war games where they had the entire roster all pile into that triple cage and it was like they climb up to the top and then climb back down and exit it to yeah win the no that was awful popping midway through dreadful but great at the same time like, what an amazing oh amazing prop like it, and it was no way near used as much as they could if i yeah. saw pete dunn and tyler bate go in there now like well maybe not those two but like orton cena if those guys had had that yeah like the adventure like anyone with a good feud for for a world title you know you see a lot of intercontinental titles decided in a ladder match but this epic cage you get the world title main you know cage like that has to be the main event really big gold yeah. belt i mean i love the visual the big gold belt hanging above that triple cage and they've got to oh, climb you know yeah. it's like a hell in a cell uh, at the bottom they've got to use the ladders to to get up to the next floor there's weapons in the second floor uh, so you can get creative i suppose with the 
third cage. Uh, they at Slambury they had guitars in there because Jarrett likes to smash guitars all the time. Uh, in games they ignored it entirely. Yeah. Yeah, but you could you can get a bit crazy. You can just have one single thing, or you could do a thing where you need to find the lock and the key to get out. Because then when you're at that third one, you're basically just climbing top to grab the belt. You can get really crazy mm. with it. And to give a little bit of a tease and a plug, uh, people who listen know I write a bit of a, a sad act fan fiction of if WCW had carried on past the fusion mm. bite in 2001 one of the things i did bring back was the triple cage i think it was like um in 2003 it was sting and sean o'hare for the world title i won't i won't give away too many details in in hopes that like six more people read it instead but um but yeah uh, uh, mate, i think you've just lost five of them might have seen sean o'hare but enough about that oh you're kidding me like uh if if, if those though carried on he'd definitely uh, he'd have been something very for a little bit. Very um, like one of those guys who just, just missed the radar. Mark, like Mark Jinderak, but anyway, I digress. Yeah, well, we do a lot of digressing here, especially when the show's is turgid. But I'll get oh, back yeah. on topic one little thing, and this is my biggest takeaway from this main event, is we finished with a swerve in the main event. DDP gets turned on. Now, referencing Slambury 2000, uh, that triple cage main event, that ends, spoiler alert, with David Arquette swerving DDP and turning on him. And then at the Great American Bash, third straight pay-per-view, he gets swerved and loses his match to Mike Awesome by his best friend, Canyon. And the funny thing about that Great American Bash one, that wasn't actually the main event. The first two were. So, of course, Russo and Bischoff think, well, we've done that swerve on DDP, three straight swerves on DDP, but we still have a different main event. We still need a swerve in that. So they swerve with Goldberg. Swerve, 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 swerve. That sums up this this turgid three to four month period that then just peters out after New Blood Rising won the worst pay-per-views ever that we've also covered. Oh yes. And and the thing with it, you know, you can have a swerve that makes sense, but these don't make sense. It's swerve for the sake of swerve. Yeah, you can have. You know, I've, my my philosophy on booking has always been work backwards. Basically, f- think of where you want something to end, and then work your way back to the starting point. And if if you you know if you I'm I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head. Well, why you're thinking of that, Dean? I don't really know why you're complaining because I felt like this was a very backwards book angle. I think everything <laughs> about this show was backwards. So. It's not... <laughs> Yeah, and Dean, if you tried to explain that booking principle to Vince Russo, you'd get about 10 words in and he'd start chasing after a light bulb or something or a pretty light in another room or he'll see a dog going for a walk out the window and want to know its name or something like that. His, his attention span won't have it. Oh, I will right. say that this, this struck me quite a bit with Kimberly because I I was very used to like the Sables, the, the Jackies, the like the Leaders who like as, as you know as great as they were they weren't they weren't having no no Lita wasn't really having a match at this point Lita was still there oh I'll take my top off like um, you know like for me watching Kimberly come out and smack him right in the face as hard as you did and then have that real strong female yeah I make my own decisions fuck my husband smash him in the face with the guitar. Like, I don't want to get all that feministy and all that stuff because I'm not a biological woman. I'm a psychological woman, so I can't claim that. But it was very impactful on me as a young fan of going, wow, like the person who's changed the main event is a woman 
who's not got her tits out, she's like wearing clothes. It was just insane to me. I'd never seen it. And yet they still have to portray that type of character as a devious wench. So you're not quite out of the woods yet, are we? Well, oh, mate, yeah. no, 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 no. The face of the night is Tammy who comes out in her underwear in a negligee. Like, let's look, yeah, it's, it's, it was a different time. <laughs> different time. Yeah, but, but you're right. It's, it's, and it's not just Vince Russo. It seems to be wrestling, generally speaking, that, um, as you say, I, if, women aren't, if women aren't taking their clothes off, they are showing us that they are all universally not to be trusted. Yes. And, and or crazy. Yeah. And There's I a just, reason why I'm a drag queen, darling. I blame it entirely <laughs> on this pay-per-view start to finish. I just, I just want to know, like, what what happened in Vince McMahon's past to cause all that. But, but anyway, so we are leaving Spring Stampede behind. Thank you so much for choosing that. It was an adventure. It was certainly an adventure. But before we let you go, Priscilla, we do, of course, ask every guest of ours to select a, uh, a WCW entrance theme of their choice. So you have supplied Liam with your choice. So Liam, if uh, you can hit the play button in three, two, one, play. There's that vital clue right at the start. It, it, it is hauntingly generic, I have to say. Um, Priscilla, what made you choose this one? Oh, it, it's partly... Um, do, do you know what it is? It's Because uh, uh, there's going to be people who listen to this and they're going to think we're being sarcastic about this event. I think and I don't think sarcastic. <laughs> I think sarcastic. You know, I, I, I think my entire wrestling career is sarcastic, really. <laughs> But at the end of the day, like in order to just punctuate just how ridiculous this show is, it's just proving that yes, it did actually happen. And if you haven't seen it, you cannot imagine it until you've actually watched it. It's, it's a ride worth taking. So why did you pick this thing? Because <laughs> it's dreadful. It's dreadful. And it's got the best opening I've ever heard. Like. I, I heard that going in with it as a WWF fan who thought he understood wrestling. And then, then I heard, I went, oh, okay, right, maybe I don't understand wrestling. And oh no, here's the proof. He's walking out now, surrounded by 13 other options who'd all be better than he would to actually have this match. It's just, it summarizes WCW for me. You know what, Priscilla, the, the next time one of our guests says to us, Oh, I can't believe nobody's picked Bad Street USA yet. Or I can't believe I get to choose Hollywood Blondes and no one else has had it in 50-odd episodes. I'm going to say to him, it's because people come on and pick fucking Man Cow. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. And we have Finn Martin come on picking Ricky Steamboat's Family Man theme from Slam Jam. Uh, not everyone picks it. I, I kind of appreciate this. Not everyone picks what they think is the best theme or their favourite theme. People pick some downright obscure ones. 
Uh, and yeah, it doesn't get more obscure than this. I didn't even realise Mankell had epoxy theme. It's just, it's it's WCW, NWO Revenge, Entrance Music, number two of four, and they've just added his own name at the start once. Ah, and so that's, that's the link. There we go. There we go. There we go. Mm. <laughs> uh, I said it was generic. Marvellous. Right. Well, we will bring things to an end there. Priscilla, thank you so much for joining us. It's been it's been a lengthy podcast, but goodness me, we've we've gone off on some magnificent tangents. It was it's 40 been very matches, of course it was. Of course it was <laughs> long. We, crazy it, has been, it has been a really fun discussion. So thank you it so has. much for giving up your time to uh, to come and um, and speak to us. If people want to catch you on um, social media, where can they find you? It's Priscilla Couture. Uh, anywhere, so Priscilla Q-O-T-R. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of that nonsense. I've got a YouTube channel, Queen Priscilla. Just drop me a message, and I'll, I love people feeding my ego, and I am desperate to show you my work. So find me, and I will link you to Arlo's. And um, when when live wrestling gets back after uh, after this whole pandemic, where what promotions can people see you in? Well, um, any that listens to this podcast and decides to book me. And then uh, outside of that, my main haunts will be Riptide Wrestling, a bit of WAW. You see me on the occasional Rev Pro show, um, Kapow. Basically, anywhere along the South Coast, if they can't afford someone decent, Priscilla will probably be there taking that spot. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that is all we've got time for this episode. So thank you so much for downloading us uh, wherever you get your podcast from. Please subscribe to us. Please do rate and review us. And you can find us on Twitter at BecauseWCW, Facebook.com forward slash BecauseWCW. We'll be back very soon with another watch along and some more pay-per-view reviews. So on behalf of Liam, this is me, the Twisted Genius, saying thanks for joining us. And I'll see you ringside.